How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sasha Podcast, episode 246. Ooh. Is this the next entry from Devonshire Farms, number 246? Megan Montgomery, riding Avalon. Like, that's the movie? It's, she's riding a horse, yeah. That's the movie. It's from a movie called Moondance Alexandra. Wow. And she's number 246. How are you? Film. Is there a website that you can yeah, type? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, it's a play phrase. Oh, nice. That's the one I use. It's good. And uh, but Excellent. I think you have to pay to get more than five. So I get I basically get five movies with the number. I could type okay. in the number, and then I'm I'm just giving away my process. Okay. I really shouldn't do. Sorry, that, I shouldn't have told. I shouldn't have. No, it's, I'm pretty sure we can I, restart the episode. <laughs> no, where I'm you pretty don't. sure I I already said it weeks ago that it's play phrase. But it's actually Andy Andy Newcomb, friend of the show, who did the castle with us not that long ago. Mm. Who um introduced me to this website, but I think if you want more than five films, mm. you have to I think pay, and then okay. they'll give you like all of the entries they have, which is a, sh- a shocking amount. They have a shocking number of films. Well, I looked this up. Moondance Alexandra on Letterbox has like less than five hundred logs, so some secure uh, yeah. picking up the niche ones. In, yeah, some really um, what? Oh my god, I'm thinking the word. I'm, I want to say secure films, but that's not the word. Obscure films is the yes. word I'm looking for. There you go. Zeke, how's your how's your week been? Pretty good. I'm on school holidays, so I'm living yes, that good are. life. I'm about to close out what one term away from closing out my first year as a teacher. Oh, Let's excellent. go. It feels like longer, doesn't it? It does. I it's kind of you did a lot of longer cracks, and though. yeah, longer and shorter. Yeah, well that's it too. Because and particularly with the masters that you do through the University of Notre Dame, you do two 10-week pracs. So you have these two elongated stints in which one of them was at the school that I'm at, mm. um, where you you basically just, you're a teacher. Um, yeah. And to be honest, the way that both of those pracs went, they were very much like, no hand-holding, you just get in there and get to it. And, mm. um, so Throwing it's been, you in the deep end. Yeah. I mean, it's been a big year. It's a big year. But... uh. uh I'm kind of it's kind of crazy that it's like the ten more weeks uh, as mm. of next week, and then that's it. Um, that's it. Year one done. Very nice. Um, and then you know, just keeps going from there. But it, you know, I'm enjoying the the time off. I went away. That's it. You went you went up north. You went away. I went down south. There you go. <laughs> we got and as far away. Back. We got as far away as each other as possible. <laughs> Maximize that distance. Um, and yeah, look, coming coming into this week refreshed. Yes, uh, very much so. I'm less sick than I was last week, so yeah. I feel like it's really nice to sort of, you know, I get to try, try test out my car too um, Ooh, on the road. Very nice. Uh, it's travelled. It's now saying it needs a service. You know, when the service oh, light goes on. The, oh, oh, there's a light that goes on. Yeah, mine goes like every fifteen thousand k's. It's like oh, service due. Now we didn't do fifteen thousand k's, but whoever had the car before did about thirteen. Right, done right. About the last two. Um, okay, well, they they would have done some checkups and stuff before you bought yeah, it. Yeah, so yeah, But I'll get yeah, quick service. To be, I'm like, I'm like at least three or four thousand kilometers above. Um, I was thinking I was meant to get it done at sixty-seven thousand. I'm at seventy-one thousand kilometers now. Yeah, but oh, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. Zick. I'll get there one yeah. soon enough. Not, not, <laughs> not, not, not really any big problems. So no, exactly. Um, yeah. That's the main thing. And then. That trip's done and back in the window, and now it's uh, prepping for Europe, really. And then yeah. our our run home, we're now closed within a month of episode 250. It will be. Which is... Ooh, that's insane. on the horizon. Yeah, that's a oh month away. Oh, my God. 
Um, I know. We're sort of in our Lord of the Rings tear at the moment. I mean, literally right in the middle of it. So I haven't been thinking about the fact that 250 is right around the corner. Yeah. It's a, it's been an epic quest in its own right to get to 250. So, That's been but we're not there yet. Not Jake, quite. We'll get to Mount Doom soon. You did mention uh, <laughs> fun facts. Or you mentioned Lord of the Rings. I did. I did. Do you have any fun facts from the film of the week, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? I do. And this is a really fun one because I actually never heard of this one before. And I would love to um, share it with the audience. So, um, there was a. I mean, you actually talked about injuries last week on the Lord of the Rings. I did. And this was this is another injury I read about that. Uh, good old uh, Vigo Mortensen, uh, when he kicks the the steel helmet, he actually broke a couple of his toes by doing it. So the scream when he when he screams in that shot, and it is the one in the final film. So method. I know it was. <laughs> it's very method. I know he actually. So that's a that's an authentic scream of pain. Even though um, it's it's meant to be, you know, the the pain of losing his closest pals, Merry and Pippin, but <laughs> but, but can, evidently, I guess. Can not. you believe it, Jake? That was exactly my fact. You too. were going to say that too. I know. Oh my god! Can you believe it? I no, I can't. I literally can't. It's just such a good fact that no one's ever heard of before. I know. So we had to repeat it twice. There you go. I love it. There you go. That that's a great fun fact for everyone. Mm. Um, I I personally thought that was really the only interesting. Fun fact yeah, about there's this there's entire trilogy. One no, other than that, no, like, exactly. Um, you know, I was I was sitting there. I read that <laughs> fact, that only fact, and was like, "Wow, I don't even need to watch the other movies. <laughs> I know that one piece of trivia that no one knows." I Obviously, actually don't think I need to watch any other films ever. No, that's it. So it's a shame we're not going to get to two fifty. <laughs> we're stopping the show because um, of that one fact. Of course, we are teasing. I'm sure there'll be plenty of facts scattered in the second yes, half of the yeah. show. But, Jake, before we get there, mm. have you caught anything in the last week? Um, I haven't caught much. Actually, I did watch something substantial that I can cover in the career updates. Okay, cool. So we'll, we'll get to that soon. But the one I will talk about, and I did actually say last week I was going to get dragged to this film. I did promise. Yes. I did watch Saw X or Saw 10, if, yep. you, wanna, if you want to call it that. I think... I was talking to my brother about this because he's much more of a Saw fan than yep. than I am. And he was saying, I think it was called Spiral, one that came out a couple of years ago. That's technically the night mm-hmm. film. That was panned, so they kind of stopped counting it as the night film. But then for the convenience of copying Fast X, they wanted to call this Saw X. So, you know, it's this whole weird So it thing. is the 10th film, canonically? Um, or non-canonically? Well, uh, I guess, I mean, it's called X, it's called 10, so I, I guess it is. But in terms of the narrative, this actually takes place between the first and second films. So in, in really, like myself, I think I've only seen the first Saw proper. I could go into this narratively and sort of connect the dots because only mm. the first one is prior to this. Um, but that being said, I this is a really interesting film. And I will preface it by saying I am shocked that it's got quite a good reception online. It's got like a 3.5 on Letterboxd. Quite good reviews, quite warm reception. Um, and it's not doing the David Gordon Green or Blumhouse thing where like they're, they're bringing some new kid in to revitalize the whole thing. It's actually directed by Kevin uh, Grutert, who actually edited the very first Saw 20-plus years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, plus. No, it was 2004, so it was about 20 years ago when they would have shot that but i think he was also involved in the short film that that was based so he's been with the franchise forever yeah. since the very very beginning so it was, it's not like some new kid has come in to like revitalize the franchise mm-hmm. um but that being said i'm i'm surprised by the warm reception because i i mean i didn't dislike the film as you thought it was a totally fine watch it's got all the gore 
you want. But it kind of does this thing structurally. And it reminded me a little bit of Jeepers Creepers earlier this year, the new one they did, where I'm not familiar with the franchise as a whole, uh, structurally, narratively, to really comment on how unique what this film is doing. It might not be unique at all. But it, it the first half or the first 30 minutes of it feels almost like a prank or a dare from one of the producers. Mm. So we start off with Jigsaw. And well, the guy, I forget his name, even though he says it 50 million times in the film. I forget his name. And he's this old man. And I remember him from the first saw of, oh, he's the twisted dude who set up all these traps to like really kill these people. And I know, I know like they deserve it. You know, the, the, one of them is a cheater. Or I know there was something there. Um, but, you know, he's this twisted old man with these horrible puzzles that are going to, like, you know, dismember them and kill them and do all these awful things. You know, he's, he's a typical horror villain, Zeke. At least in my head, that's what he is. Yeah. And the first 30 minutes of this film is, here's this sad old man with cancer, and he's, he's really sad, he's going to die, and he, he, he takes a leap of faith. He finds these medical scientists in Mexico... And they're just the loveliest people and they're going to take good care of him and they're going to use this wonderful new stem cell research technology to cure his cancer. And I swear to God, Zeke, for like 30, 40 minutes, it's just that. And I'm like, this feels like the most purposely hilarious thing you can do yeah. with a Saw film before the twist comes in and, and I'll spoil it because it's in the logline. It turns out they're scam artists and they don't cure him all. They basically just target people they know have money who have cancer to sort of prey on their weaknesses and their desperation. And so that's when the saw element comes in and he, he basically traps all of them. And then it's basically just a film where he just slowly murders all of them. And there's little twists and turns here and there. But I thought the structure of doing it this way was so interesting. Cause number one, you're getting rid of the mystery element that made yeah. the original so great in that you, you start with these characters all tied up and you, you don't know why, you know, why they're there, who has done this to them. All of these questions that the film can sort of extend its runtime trying to slowly answer and intrigue its mm. audience where well, you don't have that anymore because you're on the other side of the fence you're from the perspective of the, the murderer it almost takes the more slasher route where it's it like it does yeah where it's setting up all of these uh, you know unlikable characters who kind of deserve what's going to happen exactly. to them um, and then watching them basically yes succumb victim to the slasher monster Exactly, and by the time you get to the end where like the tables are turning and, and one of the victims actually is able to get Jigsaw into the puzzle and he has to work his way out of his own puzzle. And it's like, by that point in the film, like, I don't know who to root for because they're mm. all sort of awful. You've established all these awful people for, you know, they're scammers, but then also Jigsaw's response to it is like creating these elaborate puzzles that just slowly dismember people. And you're mm. like, this is like really over the top. <laughs> But then for that audience that go that are purely there for the gore factor, yeah, they have to they have to slog through thirty forty minutes of like ironically heartfelt <laughs> scenes of this old man dying to then get to the gore. But, but I mean, like you said, it's got this relatively warm perception uh, reception. It's it's clearly it's they working. Must, they must yeah. like the uh, the Carl from Up introduction. <laughs> 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 Where you just feel sad for the old man's isolation yeah. and yeah. the yeah. world enclosing in upon him. Uh, and then it takes a sore turn. That's so funny. Yeah, it just... That was sort of my... When I walked out of the cinema, that was sort of my thought process. This is a bit of a... 
it's it's almost like a, a puzzle box to be solved is how do you do that and again this is something like this is the 10th film we know these characters and, and i'm i again i've only seen the first one i don't know how sympathetic this person john kramer that's his name i just remembered i don't know how sympathetic john kramer is meant to be at this point if you've watched all the films but i just from an outsider perspective not knowing much about the other saw films i just thought this is like some sick twisted joke how sympathetic they're trying to make this character. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like watching a like a Friday the Thirteenth film, and then it's like, oh, Jay- poor Jason, he's just he's just. But but then that's the thing is like all the great horror films, they feel like they do have a twist where the villain is sympathetic from a point of view. Well, maybe. I mean, we we just watched Tallow, you know, Halloween Kills not too long ago, and mm. and I think that this obviously the David Gordon Green sort of revamping of those yeah. films very much at least that first one that came out in 2018 yeah 18 um very much painted him as just he's just evil there's no yeah he's and it was probably evil so um and the system's what's kept him alive mm. really um and you can get like we said we can you can make a really good film just off that notion it doesn't need to have that complexity there in fact I think a lot of the classic slasher villains that they don't have complexity. The, the 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 puzzle that's being solved with them is why they do what they do. But it's not that yeah. of garnering sympathy. It's more just understanding how heinous and horrible the motivation. Yeah, the psychological point. aspect. You're right, and and that's the thing about the 2018 Halloween from memory is that it acts as a lot of the exploration that the other sequels that I guess aren't canon anymore did. Like the fact that he's like Laurie's um, brother. Yeah. And it's like, it just acts that because I guess that wasn't working. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's like uh, keeping it quite simplistic. I don't like horror films. Like, Mm. I don't like uh, all of the the mess that they have canonically. Right. um, Well, the the ones that last for 15,000 entries into the series. Yeah. I think they're really good horror films. Don't get me wrong. There's amazing horror films out there. And and even some of those original ones, the Halloweens or the the thing and and, and mm. things like that where it's I love the original concepts and those ones but yeah it's when they start putting in like the like you've just led in with this Sorex conversation about yep. spiral being canonical they're not being canonical but it's called right. Sorex so I guess it is yeah. canonical yeah exactly um and like you said it's like I and don't know it, if I have the patience to sit there and watch all 10 saw films to know if uh, John Kramer is a good or a bad person. <laughs> to understand why they presented him the way they did. Exactly. Um, no, I'm with you. And, and who'd to, you go with? To the credit... Oh, my brother. My brother Has he seen one. all 10? I don't think he's seen all 10, but he's a big fan of the franchise. Okay. And and for that same reason, he just loves... He thinks John Kramer's cool. He loves all the gory death scenes. And, uh, and, and to be fair, I really should be going into Saw X with that same mindset. Not not dumb, but just like, what, what am I expecting yeah. And it's, it's what am I expecting out of a franchise of which I've only seen twenty percent of its entries? Mm. So I'm I'm fully acknowledging that I'm going. Um, this is my I guess review or my thoughts of Saw X as someone who's completely uneducated in the franchise, and so ma- maybe we're just not giving enough credit to the horror genre or the horror slasher well, genre. Yeah, and I think you know we we did have a very similar conversation when we were doing Halloween Kills that. In recent years, we've had this introduction of this more high art horror, where mm. we're thought, you know, we're we're challenged like the to think of the, world. the midsummers, the yep. anything from the Jordan Peele sort of era yes. of the yep. asses and and Get Out, where 
they're adding they're having absolutely they're still a horror film but because they've got all of this more high art thinking um uh, or at least they're challenging us with political notions and and, and trying to make yeah. us think more um maybe we're just uh we're more equipped to di- like those kind of films because mm. um, y- y- whereas this this sort of slasher just murder spree is is not something that uh is for everyone um and some and maybe the expectation narratively is is just far less and it's just meant to be you meant to enjoy these elongated horrifying death scenes yeah exactly and and look if someone who saw jeepers creepers and was like that was utterly garbage the most recent one and even like from that point of view just wanting to see cool deaths um this sort it does that job a lot better much much better so if you're that's the thing if you're in for it just for that and you do find the opening 30 minutes kind of Kind of almost like a wink and a nod, and f- and like funny intentionally. Then, then I can understand why you would enjoy this film a lot. And like I said, I didn't dislike it. I just walked away very like conflicted and distracted by mm. all of these thoughts in my head. Maybe I do need to watch more Saw films to sort of answer my own questions. But um, yeah, or uh, what have you watched in the last week, Zeke? Um, well, I've not watched any films other than the film of the week, but mm. I've caught up on many a series. I've had the oh, time to, to kind of lock in. Um, and you know, look, we've, we've, we're talking about a big franchise film in the Lord of the Rings franchise. I decided, well, it's about time I sat down and watched some of these Star Wars shows. So, ah, um, okay. I've tackled, uh, the Mandalorian season three and Ooh, okay. have just got up to date. I don't think the season uh, of Ahsoka is finished, but. Um, I'm up to date with that. I think there's still okay. one or two episodes. You've seen left. Like the big fight. I've seen that on YouTube pop up, like the big fight scene. That I guess yeah. been waiting twenty years to see. Yeah, I was interested. So I'll start with Mandalorian season three. Sure. Um, it's very much. I have to admit, it had been so long since I had even given uh, Star Wars attention that I was little um historically and and timeline wise whiplashed i was like oh, i see yeah. i didn't have a clue where we were in the context of the timeline mm. um and it's kind of funny because the direction these shows are taking is they're slotting themselves after episode six but before episode seven right we're basically these shows are simply building to where does the first order come from because mm. it has to build that way or, hmm. and I genuinely think this to an extent, they really don't want to acknowledge Seven, Eight, Nine's existence. Like, yeah, to an extent. it feels like that a lot. And that's the one I'm really more leaning towards. Like, they're trying to like completely get rid of that part of history. Hmm. And let's be real, who could blame them with that episode nine? <laughs> um, but it's it's kind of funny because yeah, episode nine is, I think, oh no, it's not John Boyega's favorite, but it's his second favorite. John Boyega. Yeah. He's openly come out and said that The Force Awakens is his favourite and The Last Jedi is his least favourite. Okay. Out of the... Okay. Even I will Which concede I, I, I guess preferred Last it, Jedi over Rise of Skywalker. Was, yeah. Um, but... Which was Garbogio. But... Um, <laughs> and, and to be honest, if you're Disney, or at least if you're the creative heads of the Star Wars division, yeah. um, which is particularly Dave Filoni and sort of... Um, a bit of Kathleen Kennedy, I guess, to an extent. Mm. Um, 
they're just ignoring that. They're like, oh, look, here's Grogu. Uh, Some <laughs> um, more toys. But Christmas. it's true. Um, uh, I didn't get too much out of Mandalorian Season 3. Um, I thought it was good. It had moments that were really solid, but kind of... Uh, I'm, I'm sort of... It basically was just a prelude to this first season of Ahsoka. Okay. Which has very much just been the live-action reunion party of the Rebels cast, the Star Wars Rebels. Right show which i love and and to be honest it really feels like this season and these earlier seasons of these shows dave filoni is is very much got a creative hand in it and Mm. it always elevates the production because it really has become in a lot of ways and there's this conversation i had with a couple of like star wars like fanboys and i've been a fan of dave filoni as a star wars creative since the clone wars show yeah and he's now go on to you know make other animated shows like Star Wars Rebels and and the Bad Batch and of course now these live action ones with Mandalorian, mm. uh, Book of Boba Fett and Ahsoka and to be honest, it's every aspect of what makes Star Wars good has had something to do with his direction with it. Right. And I, I I was saying the other day I was talking to a couple of like you know friends and and honestly we're all sort of sitting there going like. This isn't really Lucas's. This isn't George Lucas's Star Wars anymore. I feel like, like we lost that a long time ago. But, now. And, we, and we probably yeah. did. Um, and I'm not saying that's a good nor a bad thing because, to be honest, the re- what actually he did in his six films are the things that constantly have had the growth and development in mm. those eras. So, in a lot of ways, it's still spiritually his universe, but right. it is become so much bigger than that and i've really enjoyed the um the Ahsoka show such a shame that um what's his name hayden Pass. christensen no, no. Oh, um is it ray stevenson um oh he, he passed away he passed away oh. um i think it was that yeah it was wasn't it um he passed away, uh, what episode two episode three of this show and he's really a big part of the show wow um I don't know what his character's ultimate fate in the show is because um, the season hasn't finished, but that'll be interesting to see how they kind of get around that. But his performance is great. Interesting. I, the story's really good. Like I said, it's a lot of live adaptation sort of creation and conceptions of these Star Wars Rebels characters. Yeah. Um, so there's like a satisfying aspect to that. Yeah. I, I know there's also, you know, the, obviously the episode you're talking about has Hayden Christensen in it kind of, basically merging what we know him in the prequels with the Clone Wars um, Anakin okay. um, from the show. Gelling, like, the p- different personalities. Well, yeah, and, associated and, with. And, and having him wear, like, how his character's designed. And, you, and as a Star Wars fan, that's, like, amazing to see because mm. what we've seen is we've genuinely seen these animated properties which in some franchises, um, and even Star Wars to an extent, have always been declared kind of non-canonical or expanded yeah. universe or not been treated with the same respect yeah. and, and levity as these live-action ones. And to see the world become so uh, homogenous mm. um, is actually, as a Star Wars fan, very satisfying. Yeah. Because I, no, I totally get that. Like, it, it almost makes it feel like retrospectively going back and, and giving more weight to the things that, that felt like fans liked but that the creators wouldn't acknowledge as like fully canonical. And, I get that. And to be honest with, with the Clone Wars show, I mean, I, I grew it. It was a show that started as a, as a 
a kind of a kids early teens kind of show for people that like Star Wars, but didn't really have any. It was set in a in a period of time between episode two and episode three, mm. and you thought, oh, this is kind of cool. There's some fun adventures, um, but there's nothing heavy to it. And then you get to about season three, season four, and you go, oh no, there's something more coming on here. This feels mm. deeper and deeper. Um, and then it went all the way to season six, got cancelled, picked up for that final season, in, in which there's four episodes, which add up to just under, I think, 100 minutes. And I think that's the best Star Wars is. That yeah, that, wow. that 90 minutes, the final four episodes, which are all interconnected, um, and basically are just a movie. Mm. Um, and not only does it reward you for watching the show, it's probably the best ending to a, sh- a sh- animated show, one of the best, at least. Yeah, it, wow. it would, I would have a fair... And I think Star, it pretty much encapsulates what's so uh, powerful about Star Wars mm. um, with characters that, prior to this show's existence, didn't exist canonically, which right. is kind of insane to think about <laughs> how you manage to create characters in a realm that's already ripe with characters and then make put value on them uh, remedy characters that had problems in the films and then just add so much more layers and depth that basically elevates the live action films. And I've said mm. that for a, a long time that I think that show makes Revenge of the Sith go from like a good film to like an exceptionally good film. Right. Um, and this show, this Ahsoka show in this episode five, it's not just about the fight. It's everything that happens in that episode which just completely homogenizes those those two mediums mm. into one property, and that feels so rewarding because it makes those moments in that show like really validate them. And yeah. I know that's because they're basically all Dave Filoni's babies, and he's just looking after all of them, and he's probably <laughs> this ruthless pursuer. But it's what the fans want, isn't yeah. it? And, and it feels like it's taken this long to actualize this whole thing. And and that's yeah. and and to be honest, uh, it's a been a pretty much of a slam dunk of a show. Great casting. Um, uh, the dude from Aladdin, he's great. Ezra, like, oh, there's, there's so funny. many good decisions that are being made there. It sucks because everything that's happened this year, you know, it's pretty hard to have a very positive opinion of Disney this year. Mm. Um, just the last few years, really. Yeah, to be honest, and and I'm I'm struggling. Like I I've sat here for the last couple of months. I mean, like I've not even got near a Star Wars property. Um, you almost party you doesn't want to because you out of some spikes because you want mm. to see more original shows get that spotlight. Um, but then you watch those shows and you're just like, oh, jeez, I like the, I like this too much. I shouldn't right. like this, 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 but I, I just can't help it. Um, we're, we're diamonds in the rough. If we yeah, as Disney as the wider rough, I would, I would say that <laughs> that it's, it actually is the serialized format that they've tried to do with the Marvel stuff doesn't work as well with the Marvel stuff, but actually works really well in the Star Wars mm. sense. That's because Star Wars has always been, in my opinion, better in those shorter bursts. Like, I do think my favorite property is the Star Wars Clone Wars animated show, and that's 20 to 30 minute episodes, you mm. know. Like, there's something about exploring little stories across a vast galaxy that's just so much more interesting than... Yeah. Um, the way that what they've done with the the Marvel f- shows, which try and have this bigger feeling, all but it's extremely it, to, stretched out. 
to be mm. honest, I don't know. What I'm worried about with the Star Wars ones is unless they are going to actively almost just like pretend seven, eight, nine don't exist or actively mm. systematically destroy that from existence to like recreate seven, eight, nine in a different realm, which I do think is possible. Yeah. In is never out of the question. Um, I'm worried because they're trying to create this, this growing threat that just wasn't there in the timeline. Mm years after this this the, the thing events. that bothers me about that is is and like you think okay well of course they have to defend the films if people are calling them out there you know they turn around and you know like oh last jedi was crap or Rise of skywalker was crap blah blah blah, blah, blah. and of course disney's perspective is like oh no we, we're proud of these films we stand by them we you know the, we think these are the films that were meant to be made and then just taking 10, 20 years to just slowly undo that work because they know deep down maybe they were wrong. <laughs> yeah. It is it's, interesting. It's just, it's, it I, is. I think that's a terrible and approach. Particularly um, in season three of Mandalorian and Ahsoka is where I'm starting to see these weird flags popping up where it's... Right, the retcon flags. Where, you know, it's basically, it's, you know, it's post-episode six. It's been, what, 10, 15 years since the, the Galactic Civil War, the New Republic is in its infancy and is kind of a bit disorganized. Mm. There are people that are struggling to adjust to this world while there are these pockets of the Empire, which would 100% still exist, that are basically operating on this shadow council um, and they're trying to bring back, and you know, this is basically the big villain of Rebels, which is Grand Admiral Thrawn. That's yeah. the driving uh, plot for uh, Ahsoka for yeah. the season one. And he's like the big bad, like he was the general of generals in the Empire, and and because of events of Rebels, he was taken out of the equation for the Galactic the, Civil War, for which the trilogy, yeah, and and yeah. Ezra too, who is a Jedi. Um, so basically removed them from the original trilogy. Um, and then the Ahsoka show is about basically getting Ezra and circumstantially Thrawn back into the fold. Mm. But then you sit there and go, okay, but then where are they in 789? Um, right, I see. And because that's, that's a big characters to bring back that are just not in those films. And I just keep thinking that something is going to happen that's almost going to just wipe those films. But because the but the simpler explanation, and, and it's probably also true, is like if they couldn't even get their own film trilogy to be consistent with itself, then how how on earth do they expect to get all the shows consistent with the wider story as well? Yeah. I mean, that's the simplest explanation is they just don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, it definitely feels like, and that's the worry because you feel like you're like these are really good moments that are happening. Um, but are they serving a greater good in a and future story? I think this is the conclusion I was kind of getting to, or at least alluding to, and I'll still finish Ahsoka and I'll probably still like it, but these shows have very much become both, and this is in the Disney model, Yeah, have become a collection of fan moments that, you know, still have a story tethered to them, but they're more important. They almost feel to an extent that it's like, oh, like I said, it's this animated character that's now got a live-action person. Yeah. And that somehow validates my existence watching those shows, which is great. But at the same time, like you said, I don't know what the long-term goal is Mm -hmm. because you've got characters like Grogu 
where it's like, yeah, it's great. It's Baby Yoda. You know, we all like the Mandalorian. There's, there's all these other things happening. But in like 10 years, we're about to move into the 789 story. Mm-hmm. And this Baby Yoda is just nowhere to be seen. Or... But this also goes into the other thing is, as fans, do we want... We want the universe to feel huge, or the galaxy, yeah. I should say, to feel huge in that. Yeah, I think we get frustrated when things feel too interconnected and that every single character is related to each other. So is that sort of their excuse for, well, that's why Grogu's not in the tri- the sequel trilogy is because, like, Often. it's a big universe. He's off somewhere True. else. But my counterpoint, and this will probably come into... <laughs> this actually does... No, this, I agree with what you're okay. saying. Yeah. But, and I'm going to tie it in with the film of the week. Okay. Um, yeah. Or the franchise, basically. And why that trilogy is so good is it comes back to that, Matt, like the destiny aspect, you know, the, mm. the fact that we are all spiritually tied to our destiny and we're actually inescapable on that path. Mm. Um, and Lord of the Rings, thankfully, and it's three films now, I know it now has a show and then it has another three films affiliated with it, but at the time, we watched a fellowship of characters be go on their own adventures but irrevocably be intertwined with one another Mm. because they ultimately share a similar or the same goal yeah and their destinies ran along parallels Mm. basically um and you know that'll be and i think star wars at a point encapsulated this really well and still does at times but yeah it's got a it it honestly there was a time where disney just went loco went crazy and just didn't have a plan to do with star wars they got the property and went we're gonna make these movies and now we're gonna make these shows and we'll just deal with it when we get there we'll get there yeah get there because there was no there really was no rush to do seven eight nine but they did it um Mm. and they needed to make their four billion back as quickly as possible and that was that was the logic (laughs) it was purely a financial decision there was no creative uh longevity to it that's why we get you know, this massive conversation on the inconsistencies of uh, director's uh, vision, Mm. which, you know, I would have rathered, and that led to overall a product being crap, terrible. Like, that most people walked away not liking by the end of it. I will say, though, they also got Indiana Jones in that same deal, and it took them 12 years to make one movie, and it still sucked. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think time was irrelevant. They were going to screw it up. The reality way. is, but yeah, but you uh, know, maybe I'm being too mean. I don't know. The reality is, it's like <laughs> if we had got three Ryan Johnson films or three J.J. Abrams films, at least there was the consistency there. Yeah. And I think that they should have had J.J. do all three. Yeah, they probably should have, or they probably, you know, but we saw all these other directors, you know, have their crack at it with Solo and and Rogue One and. You know, people liked Gareth Edwards. Yeah. Like, could have easily got someone like Gareth Edwards to do all three of them and probably would have got a very consistent, probably well-received product. I, To be honest, the the biggest mistake was they didn't give it to... took take the risk and give it to Dave Filoni. I mm. think, to be honest, as a director, as a creative head, no one encapsulated, I think, what Lucas wanted to do. And that's because in those early seasons, particularly the Clone Wars, Lucas was still involved. Yeah. So a lot of the product we saw was an amalgamation of the two. It was almost like a, a passing of the torch. Yeah. And if you watch any of the behind the scenes and the conception of that show, uh, 
yeah, that's basically what happened. He basically learned how to kind of see what he, um, George Lucas Lucas wanted and and harness when over when Lucas was overstepping or sort of mm. going a little crazy and talking about Gungans too much. And, um, <laughs> no, there's genuine and it's no, so I, funny. I'm sure that footage the, exists. The boardroom yeah. conversations they were having yeah. at the Lucas Ranch, and it's like. It's so cool because it would be like Lucas would want to do this wacky thing and then Filoni would have to try and canonically Talk make him it, out of it. Yeah, oh, so, you so, yeah, like in real it. time, find a reason yeah. for it to not happen. Um, That's good. And it was amazing. <laughs> and I just wish that Disney hadn't... But I think it was like you said, it's the four billion. They go, oh, well, JJ's just gone off the back of some pretty good Star Trek films that people liked and made money. So yeah. well, let's I, give it to I, him. I will say like at the time... Like them announcing JJ as the director of episode seven, like it felt like, oh, this feels really right. It yeah. did feel right at the time, and and if they had just said like, oh, we're gonna give it to Filoni for episode seven, I don't know if the public response would have been as wide, but I think the Star Wars community would have been like lost their minds. Yeah, and it probably would have worked out in the long run. For probably, them. it probably would have. It would have. We wouldn't have led with and now they're going to have to try and either fix the dog's breakfast or embrace it and try and yeah. tweak it as much as they can, which is basically what uh, Filoni did with the prequel trilogy where everyone was like, oh, that second one kind of sucked and there was this you know, there was this weird sort of lukewarm to warm reaction and then he went in there and added in all this other stuff and everyone now thinks those films are great. Mm. And I do think that that has a lot to do with what he put in there for Star Wars fans. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I'm yeah. enjoying the show well enough, but I'm worried because um, I I do agree. I think it's their mistake. They should deal with it. And Disney's problem normally the way of fixing it is ah oh, we'll just pretend it didn't exist. We'll just remake them. We'll just and everyone will be happy. And it's like well just recast it with minority, and yeah. uh, that will solve everything according to Disney. That's it. That's how you do it. <laughs> remake it. Make it Snow White and the Seven People. <laughs> Seven people. They're not dwarfs. I know, I know. That's the best part. <laughs> like, can you... The oh, seven diverse... I'm not going, I'm not going it's there. It's great. I'm not going there. I think I the world has, has gone there enough. Well, look, I'll, I'll take us away from it. I'll segue us because I love that you talked about Star Wars because my segue is, is to do with sci-fi. Okay. And, uh, and this is my career update for the week. I... Oh, God. I wish I figured out which episode this would have been. But in late 2020, this would have been like November... Most okay. of November, I was on a short film, a local short film. I think it was like a 14 or 16 day shoot. It was it was staggering. And the end result was a 29 minute film that they finally finished. Like three years in the can, in the post-production can, so to speak. And the film finally debuted. They did a private screening last Friday, which is perfect because me and Kirsty were literally coming back from Bustleton and went, drove straight to Murdoch to do this screening for a film that I vaguely remember from three years ago having shot behind the scenes footage of and i guess now i have to finish it <laughs> the, the behind the scenes video but um the what film was it the, so the end result was called work from home which is ironic because it was oh. it was actually written before covid this is it's more of an analog on uh climate change and global warming and 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 i was surprised because actually watching i was like oh there's a lot more in here about the balance between work and pleasure and and sort of the the way that the world is is moving because it takes place a hundred years in the future, and and basically the government has found ways to trick people into working their entire lives 
through the guise of what is seemingly pleasure, and I can get into specifically what I mean by that. Um, but what I thought this was was an extremely cool 29-minute sci-fi film that, like I said, was in the can for three years, so either the visual effects were going to be really terrible or pretty di- pretty damn good. And i got to say, I, I, I thought it all worked beautifully. Like, it, I generally had, like, Dune and Blade Runner vibes for certain shots. It oh, was, excellent. It was like, including, I totally forgot, I shot a drone shot for the film. Really? And it was like, oh, yeah, that's my shot. <laughs> and it's really dope. Because we shot it out in the Salt Lakes in Rockingham, so they, they color graded the hell out of it to make it look like super yellow and super heat and hot and... There's the sharp shadow of the character that's walking in like a hazmat suit yeah. down the thing. So it was like a perfect little drone tracking shot. And and what I love is because you you can get a shot like that and be really proud of it, but it depends like how are they going to edit it into the film. Does it even make the cut? Yeah. And not only did it make the cut, it was like the perfect like it was like a twenty five plus second shot that just sort of lingered and lingered and lingered and and let the tone and the aesthetic of the film really sort of seep in. Because that's the benefit of it being 30 minutes. Now, I don't recommend, having done Disconnected, I don't recommend doing 30, 40, 50 minute short films because what do you do with them? What festivals are going to take it in? Yeah. So I imagine I imagine Scott McArnold, the director of the film, and Harrison Mitchell, the producer, I'm sure they, they've got their own sort of roadmap for how they're going to present this film. They might even just drop it online soon. I have no idea. Um, and I probably do have to have meetings with them soon to figure out the behind the scenes of what are we going to do with all that footage because I've got like 15 hours of footage. Yeah, I genuinely had to think about who the director for the film was or the creator of the film was because I remember... Right. Well, he's got a more a br- theatre background. Yeah, it's a name I haven't heard in a, a, a long in time. Some, quite some time. <laughs> a long time. Um, yeah, wow, that sent me right back. Obviously, Harrison hey, Mitchell being on the show. Yes, School uh, of Rock. Yeah, so, um, but that's, uh, I mean, that's great. That's what you want, isn't it? It's uh, Well, that's it. And it's kind like, of crazy going back to Murdoch, I imagine. It was, it was, and it was weird. And, and like, Kirstie's seen Murdoch before, but showing her, like, the Nexus, for example, which is where they played it. So, like, little faces in the crowd shout out. I was going to say, there you <laughs> home go. To a, home to a, a great <laughs> film that was made, <laughs> exactly. released uh, over five years ago now. I know, wow. That's kind of scary. It's a bit wild. True, yeah. And, um,. No, I was very, very proud of him. Like I said, I, I thought the themes were really great. I thought the tone and aesthetic of it was awesome. Um, I love the character that 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 Nicola plays. She's so she's so like quirky and just very introverted and wacky and interesting. And and but I mean, we saw the performance there. We knew it was going to be, but it was great to see it all edited together. And that was the thing about such a long shoot schedule is we were shooting so many bits and pieces, so I had no clue how they were all like how it was all going to come together and, and watching it all play out as it was meant to be in the way the story was written and told. It was like, oh, this is so cool. Because it was just, I, had a, I had enough distance from it mm. and just remembering vaguely like all these different locations we went to and how on earth does this all play together. And, and it does really well. And, and I think it I think it works really well. So I'm, I'm very proud of that film. And I did get the second AC credit, which I'm glad. There you go. Because I did get called in to slate some shots, to uh, focus pull some shots. Um, I'm chuck glad. on the IMDb. They, exactly. Got to chuck on the IMDb. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's always great to hear. Always love to love to hear the old uh, films coming out that you work on and all that. But that, that's a film we haven't talked about for a very long time. I know. Yeah. So I, my guess is like, this is like... If you want to go back in the podcast and hear when we actually worked on this, this is like episode 90, 95. 
Yeah. That was a while ago. Now, Zeke, I want to talk about a couple of things before we get into the film of the week. Okay. I know it's already a beefy episode, but we're right. just going to make it slightly beefier. Problem happens when you watch Star Wars, it turns into a 30 <laughs> rant, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, goodness. You, you can't help it. Yeah. We get we get the deep into the Star Wars. The nerdiest episode of the Cinema Sci-Fi Podcast. It's just sci-fi I, and I fantasy. I know, it really is. Well, I want to talk about another great wizard. Not okay. Gandalf, but I want to I want to uh, give a shout out to Michael Gambon, Albus Dumbledore, who has passed away only a few days ago. Very sad. He was yeah. a, he was our Dumbledore. Well, he's the second Dumbledore to pass away now. Yeah. So yeah. um, yeah. It's, just, it's it's quite sad. I mean, there's a lot of uh, you know, it's just like everything time time moves by and all that. And mm. actually, the last what Death the Allies came out nearly ten years ago, part two. Oh, t- twelve years ago now. Yeah. That's wild to think about. There you go. Well, fair innings. I'm sure Harry Potter will get another, uh, get a watch on here at some point. Yeah, it's a little, I guess, same thing with The Lord of the Rings. It's a little baffling. But then Harry Potter's also an even bigger commitment because you've got eight yeah. films. And then you argue which one do you talk about. You probably talk about a Christopher Columbus film. Yeah. Um, do you well, do... that's it, because it's like, do you sort of, yeah, do you go at the start and try and talk about the whole series, or do you go to the end and talk about the whole series? Do you start with the best one, which is Prisoner of Azkaban? Yeah. Which is sort of getting into the middle of the series. Well, and, you know, we as we talked about last week, we do feel like that when you kind of switch into that four, post the fourth one, it gets mm. a little more sterilized, and, and I think mm. less... Uh, I don't think there's as much artistry in the the final four films versus the first four yeah. films. At I'd, least in I'd, terms I'd of director style, I'd probably say style. I'd probably say there's not as much style as the yeah. first few films. They become very um, plot driven. Like they mm. become more about the events happening in them rather than uh, having stylism or at least a unique sort of voice. That I think definitely the first three films are like huge with their direction. Yeah. I can't remember whether this was a podcast or someone I spoke to in person, but I remember them saying that their dad hated Harry Potter. And the reason they did it is because there were too many, like, ooh, ah moments throughout the whole series. This, these moments of Harry looking around in wonderment at something magical. <laughs> when you when you talked about it being, like, more plot-heavy at the yeah. end of the series, I was like, yeah, the first few films were full of those moments. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're just... <laughs> They're Literally. great, but I love the idea of him just hating those specific moments and just hating the entire franchise because yeah. of that. That's very fair. <laughs> That's I awesome. think it's very fair. I love that. Well, I guess then it is time for us to move mm. into the next part of our journey, Jake. That's it. Another another Lord of the Rings film this week, but no way. what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke, we're talking about The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Track a band of Urukai westward across the plain. They've taken two of our friends captive. Look for your friends, but do not trust to hope. It has forsaken these lands. We're lost. I don't think Gandalf meant for us to come this way. He didn't mean for a lot of things to happen, Sam. Come back to you now, at the turn of the tide. 
Saddam's forces have begun their attack. He is using Saruman to destroy your people. They were unarmed. They had no warning. This is but a taste of the terror that Saruman will unleash. You must fight. I will not risk open war. Open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. A new power is rising. Its victory is at hand. Army bred for a single purpose, to destroy the world of men. Frodo and Sam arrive in Mordor with the help of Gollum. A number of new allies join their former companions to defend Isengard from Saruman. They're taking the hobbits to Isengard? <laughs> the greatest song. They're taking the hobbits to Isengard. <laughs> so funny when you said that. I was like, man, that was... That's <laughs> so good. It's so good. <laughs> What like, do DJs do anyway? <laughs> that was like that was like 2004, 2005 when that was uploaded to YouTube. It yeah. was like very early days. Yeah, it was early YouTube. It was pre-pools. And then that also reminds me of um, the Gandalf uh, gif of his head bopping up and down and people putting them in screensavers and all the computers mm. in the office. That's great. Yeah. There's a lot, to, of, lot of the rings memes back there. There is. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it's like a... There are some moments in this film where I just... I always think that they've all got, like, kind of laughable moments. Like, the, I have mm. no memory of this place, or, like... Oh, yeah. like <laughs> that's confused. right, but that's like opening an old save game, and that's the meme. Yeah. I have no memory of this place. <laughs> when you go, you haven't there been in Skyrim for six years, and then you go into your character, me. and you're like, what is going on? Yeah, yeah. toss me. <laughs> Don't tell the elf. That still only counts as one. <laughs> it's from next week's episode but Jake um, mm. the two towers yes in a lot of people's uh, heart of hearts their their favourite film of the three is it really? I'd say so I, I think okay. if you're a, like a teenage boy this one's the best one yeah well look, that that's what I was thinking and and I'll, I'll say this I was telling you off the air and I'll say it again that I'm so unbelievably glad we have the opportunity while well, I was able to take a week off yeah, from the Fellowship of the Rings, and then all the, sorry, excuse me, Fellowship of the Ring, mm. not plural, singular. Um, because the first time I watched the Lord of the Rings, the theatrical cuts, I watched all of them in basically like a weekend binge. Yeah. So the story does get sort of muddled in my head, and I start to forget which scenes are in which film. So I'm glad I had the opportunity to just watch the two towers isolated, and and I'm I'm going to wait a week before I watch the final film, of course. That way. I, I can because you know, unlike you, I didn't grow up with these films, so I I struggle to remember which is in which. So I was glad I was really able to identify this film on its own because I remember thinking it was my least favorite, and purely because it's just the middle of the story. And I know there's this idea that the middle chapter of a of a trilogy has kind of the most room to be people's favorites because it doesn't need to start or end the story. Mm. It can kind of do whatever it wants. I mean, The Dark Knight gets a lot of points for that. It can kind of be its own story. Um, but for this, it kind of has the other effect where we're in the middle chapter of what feels like one singular story. So it kind of has that Infinity War-esque pacing, almost like a television episodic show, mm. where it's just, well, we're just following these. We're just cutting between like four different storylines. And um, obviously, they're all working towards the same ultimate goal. So it, it's not like it feels out of whack. But I think, I mean, for that reason and the pacing, it threw me off at first. But going back to this film, what I was really happy or pleasantly surprised was this unified theme of like 
the effect war has on families, on communities, on entire races. Uh, we can talk about the, the tree people, the Ents, later in the show. But I was really pleasantly surprised to see, oh, that's like the one theme that really makes this chapter of the story stand mm. on its own two feet, its own two towers, yeah. so to speak. I think it's a really good way to sum it up. And, and I think, to be honest, it's... It's pretty good because I I did the same as you. I didn't mm. have the discipline with. I went from two into three, <laughs> so that's it. But I had it for one and two. I did take a week off between the two, and it is really nice. You know, obviously I've watched these films countless times, but it's been I talked about it last week. It's been a long time since I've watched these films yep. and, analytically as well, and even uh, f- probably the first real time I've actually visited them analytically. And mm. um, I think you've you've kind of brought to the forefront one of the key themes there, that impact that war can have on, on a community and a people and a race. And it also talks about sort of the whole idea of, of, of actually having the courage to fight or having to take mm. a stance um, and sort of draw that line in the sand where the first film is talking about war approaching, whereas yes. this is when war begins. Yes. And there's a big difference between the two. Um, you know, in the first film, we're watching this. the The important aspects is we're we're watching this sort of call to destiny and and the um, impossible nature of avoiding absolute sort of destinies that and responsibilities of the world and and races taking up arms that often are non combative or even uh, disengaged by the world around them because of their isol- isolationism. Mm. Um, and they sort of continue those themes here with what happens with the Ents and their sort of story, but that ability that the inevitability of, of you getting involved in the war to end all wars. And it, yeah. it's such an interesting um, sort of, from a writer's point of view, from a Tolkien point of view, that he wrote all of these books post-World War One, And then obviously, mm. you know, retrospectively, we're seeing what Jackson's done, knowing what happens in, in World War Two, um, And... That's quite interesting taking it into this sort of fantasy context where we see these two powers, uh, these two towers mm. of powers. Um, <laughs> the rings of power. Uh, Out now on Amazon. Yeah, there's just so much power and, and towers. All, all the power. Towers and powers. Um, <laughs> and it's these two nations that, um, you know, in Isengard and Mordor, you know, very symbolic of of probably the relationship particularly between Italy and, and, and Germany in World War Two, mm. where one of them is kind of the real evil, the true evil in, in Germany, and the other one is this kind of wannabe sort of, you know, to quote... Um, my God, I'm blanking here. How am I blanking? Oh, no. What's his name? Oh, my God. Car- Winston car- Churchill. Oh, yeah, quote, Churchill. Winston yep. Churchill. You know, he referred to Italy as the soft underbelly of Europe. Mm. Um sort of talking about Italy's incompetence in World War Two, which was obviously retrospective to the great terror that was Germany at the time. And there's definitely that sort of uh, analogy occurring, I think, in this film. It's something I picked up. And I know Jackson does have a fascination with sort of historical um, documentary and, and history because, mm. what, 10 years after this, he goes and makes that World War Two in colour um, mm. They Shall Not Grow Old docu-series, I believe it is, where he sort of just creates a, a World War Two historical doco, but it's all done in colour. And yeah. to take that time. 
And I think, you know, from a historical point of view, I would be, it would be fair to say that I think he did care about history long before it. And he wanted to sort of bring that emphasis there. The fact that these two powers have risen up against, um, a collection of disjointed nations that think that they're say looking out for their own interests, but have to realize they need to take up arms. And I think Mm -hmm. that that definitely carries on into the third film. But in this film, we're only seeing the the burgeoning of it. You know, we've yes. Aragorn, Legolas, and, and Gimli stumble upon a, a nation sort of in in disrepair, um, in Rohan. Mm. You know that have been kind of corrupted by Saruman and and are not ready for war. Yeah. Um, despite their borders being encroached and and constantly challenged by this uprising nation that's sort of just pushing them around. Um, and then, of course, the the journey that Mary and Pippin go on, where they're basically trying to convince the you know nations that are neutral. I was in, think, I thought of neutral nations in there, Casablanca, and yeah, you know, I was watching to, to yeah, take up arms in this ends war, discussing whether to be involved or not, because um, it doesn't affect them because they they've got that isolate, and that's interesting because what we're seeing there is that journey, that arc. It, that doesn't has a little bit in the first film for Mary and Pippin, but in the second film really becomes important. Mm. Um, and we really do start to see their growth as a character and their yeah, art well, kind of being fulfilled. Especially Mary, who, who's really the one that has like the big speech to them of like, you know, you must fight. Like you must You're part be of this world. Yeah. And like our friends are all out there risking their lives and dying. Yeah. Exactly. You're part of this world and, and this world is green and you need to... And and I love I don't want to jump ahead, but I, I love that even though he can't verbally convince them, he's able to essentially trick them into seeing the destruction. So well, they have Pippin a does. huge Pippin convinces That's them. right, yeah. So like they both have a huge role to play in it well the out not only the outcome of the final battle of, of this film, um, but the whole this whole story. Yeah. And it is it is quite interesting because um you know, we are seeing, like I said, these characters that didn't have as much growth in Fellowship because Fellowship very much is about the journey that Frodo goes on. Yeah. Um, Setting him on his path with Sam. And we get a little bit of a, a, the illusion of what the arc is going to be for, for Aragorn. And actually, you know, we see people like Boromir who die at the end of the last one. They have mm. an arc. But to be honest, Fellowship is predominantly about Frodo's ability to accept his responsibility and take action um and the fellowships bonds forming is the other aspect of it whereas this Mm -hmm. film we really get um we get to see the the growth of particularly the other characters because of these parallel timelines the fact they're all split up yeah um we get to explore different characters and we really get to see characters either take you know seeing the toll that already this burgeoning war is going to have on them um, or we get to see characters kind of grow into their own and take mm. their own responsibility and build the courage to fight, particularly Merry and Pippin's role in the, in the sort of the end timeline uh, being so important, uh, yeah. I think. But it's it could be easily said about the story that Sam Frodo and the introduction of Gollum into the story. Mm. I would love to start with that because... For, I mean, for me, that's the most fascinating part of this whole trilogy is obviously Frodo's journey, but of, then the 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 interesting sort of dynamic freeway relationship between Frodo, Sam, and then when Gollum's introduced, which is very early on, it's the first. It's yes, yeah, the first thing we see. Really, I mean, we start with 
the supposed dream that he has the flashback to Gandalf um his supposed death yeah um oh no he dies <laughs> well yeah <laughs> he, he died I know I was thinking of the right terminology there but um yeah, and it's weird that then they see they cast the same actor and he just plays a different wizard in this film. It's really weird Which that they crazy. they did that. <laughs> um, Ian McKellen. No, but, but I uh, to get you're right. It's it's sort of the thing that this film opens up with is Gollum, which is surprising for a couple of reasons. Because number one, like the the technical marvel that is the character of Gollum, um, is just so impressive. I mean, like I I can nitpick certain things like the way that his character model is interacting with like grass and things like that isn't isn't as advanced as it might have been if they made this film twenty years later. But this later. is also the first film to kind of attempt this. To really do it, yes. Um, and the amount of scenes he has, the amount of close ups and like uh, monologue moments we have with him or, or even dialogue moments he's having with himself yeah. <laughs> and his split personality. Like the amount of the he had to work and we could talk about jar jar and, and phantom menace and, and all of that but it's like he really had to work and, and i think it's not even just the the technical marvel the cgi but it's, it's andy circus it's all andy circus yeah this is one of those films that you're happy to see because we, we said like a lot of these actors you know they've either had careers like before and then they just continued sort of doing their own thing after sure. these films and all these ones that were kind of defined by this performance and haven't they've popped up now and again but they're not known for anything else this was in a lot of ways the launch pad for circus's career absolutely um he is one of the biggest success stories post this film i mean mm. you know you got people like john reese davis or even mckellen who were established actors so this film is definitely elevates their profile but it doesn't define sure. them retrospectively but for Andy Circus, this is his launch pad film mm. this is because of like I said his work rate his professionalism um, and I could sit here right now and be like which performance do you prefer do you prefer his Gollum performance or a Caesar performance mm. like because they're both exceptional yeah like exactly. they're both genuinely exceptional and I at first would my gut reaction be Gollum but I don't know if it would be after I mean, three such, of the Planet of the Apes films, I there's don't know. such incredibly different performances as well because, like, there is the both have like incre- incredible physicality and they have animalistic physicality, and he nails both of them because in, in Gollum you have sort of the cat-like movement and and like all of his bones always constantly aching and he's constantly in debate with himself, literally and and emotionally with his split personalities, but then you got his performance in Caesar, which is so much more like stern. And he does have like the, the typical ape movements and, you know, the pounding of the chest and the way they use the, the stilts for their front arms to recreate that movement. But it's so much more stern and layered and, and thoughtful mm. than, than the Gollum performance. And, but it's, they're also like 15 years apart. I was going to say two performances. It, the biggest thing for me is, is just the book ending of how far CGI had come. And also yep. the comfortability. He would have been significantly more comfortable physically mm. in his performance in the planet of the Apes films. And this like in the, yeah. op- his opening is getting thrown around proper, real jagged rocks. <laughs> like, we're not registering, you know, we see this digital person, but yeah. you watch the behind the scenes. He's throwing himself. Like, yeah. It's nuts. He's committed it, 100%. It's one of those moments where you're you're watching this actor who, at this point, is pretty much an unknown, like in Andy Circus, And 
he's just it feels like in his head he knows this is the this I, this is my break if yeah. I do this and I do this well and that ruthlessness I mean they all endure um excessive environmental torment mm-hmm. at some extent at some point I mean but I think those three in particular Elijahwood Sean Aston and and uh, most well, Andy Circus, yeah, um, mm-hmm. Elijah Wood and, and Sean Aston, but particularly Andy Circus, just gets put through the ringer. Just like <laughs> they genuinely, and we forget that you know you separate the, you can't separate production context from the film in that sense. It's it was physically demanding what they were doing. Well, that to your point in terms of the time period of yeah, he probably would have been more comfortable because the technology had advanced in the future for playing Caesar and Planet of the Apes. But, like, here, you're right. It's like there is so, there was so much unknown about how Gollum was going to be done that, that Andy Serkis is only real, I guess, the only thing he really could do for the filmmakers is to do as much of it as possible himself. Yeah. The voice, the physicality, the throwing himself around. and <laughs> It's just... And it's... It, it's so impressive and his introduction's great there's a great sort of moment when he's kind of captured and and frodo pulls the sting on him and mm. there's those little beautiful oh, odes like, to literature yeah, yeah and it's that you've seen this before like it's such a great dynamic that they create immediately mm. and we we establish sam hates him straight away yes. doesn't trust him understandably um, so and the first half of the film is this sort of Frodo is kind of falling to the, the allure of, of their both um, their symbiotic struggle with the ring because mm. they have that relatability that only those two have. Um, mm. um, and the only other person in middle earth that can relate to them is Bilbo, who's not even you know in the picture anymore. So it's so interesting exploring that relationship and, and you begin to, as the audience to feel sad for 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 Smeagol, yeah, um, or Gollum, and the, and then I was reading a lot of the um, sort of last minute design changes for Smeagol for Gollum was to make him more sympathetic looking, to get rid of some of the uglier features or to maybe even humanize. Mm. I think he's, I don't think it was his eyes. I can't remember which facial his feature nose. it was. His nose, you're right. He's it was meant to have like a more Bill nose. That's right. You're right. So to to make those little change, I mean Voldemort <laughs> yeah. didn't even get that sort of. Uh, Attention, well, not attention, but um, that that pass. So you're right. There was an attempt from the filmmakers to make him somewhat sympathetic, and and we do sympathise with his just the obsessive thoughts in his head that he's he's unable to split or separate or or discern. And and what I love, you mentioned Bilbo is not in the picture, but his presence is absolutely there. Because before we even click onto the narrative device of oh, he's going to be their guide, because with the first fifteen minutes of the film, they just keep going getting lost and going around in circles is the reminder of what Gandalf told Frodo and that it was pity. The reason he didn't kill this thing, you know, many, many years ago was was out of pity and that, that perhaps he has a wider role to play in this story. And and that, if it wasn't for Bilbo's decision to spare him earlier, then Frodo probably would be on the same page as Sam. Be like, oh, let's just kill him. Let's yeah. kill him right now. And you're right. It's a mixture of that and the allure of the fact that they're the only two individuals there to understand the power of this ring, the the allure of the ring. So it's it's very nuanced, which I mm. which I love. Um, but then also creates the tension because Sam is just so frustrated at, at Frodo's uh 
uh, not acceptance, but what's the word I'm looking for? Like well, just the, the ability to to let this play out, just affecting their bromance. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's like, true. <laughs> it's just he's driving a wedge, and it I is. think it's, it is it is interesting because obviously in the first half of the film, mm. um, in that particular storyline, we're seeing Gollum. Uh, sort of separate from Smeagol. Um, yes. You know, and Smeagol's obviously the uh, innocent person that wasn't too far away from being a halfling at some point. I think it's mm. it's always vague what he is specifically, but he's, I think, a halfling um, right. or, or some primitive version of what a halfling was. Mm. Um, and uh, obviously Gollum is this sort of alter ego that has overtaken him because of the ring. It's basically the spiritual embodiment of the poisoning the ring mm. causes, um, which has affected his physical appearance. And we, we see in that first half of the film, we see those two start to separate to the point where there's this left, right camera angle conversation where it's oh, just all smiggle performance. That is absolute brilliance. That scene um, where we basically see that the, the separation um, because sort of Smeagol as the character is, is wanting to look and that's how Frodo sort of separates the two mm. because he's the one who addresses him by his name yes Sam um, calls him Gollum and Frodo calls him Smeagol yes um, yeah. and it's interesting because yeah we see that sort of separation in that great performance and um, that sort of gets you to kind of the, the midpoint of the film and, and you kind of believe, oh, well, he's got the right intention. Just Faramir had to go ruin it. Um, <laughs> it's all his fault. But, uh, you know, you, switching gears, Jake. I mean, I did say this prior to the show. Yes. But is Aragorn a misleading uh, dirty dog of a character <laughs> leading on uh, another girl in this film? I mean, you got to you got to. The only other this. girl in the in the whole world, apparently. Yeah, that's it. They've only they've only got it's Eowyn and Arwen. That's it. <laughs> um, there's no and, other and women. And the mother that sends her kids away. That's true. That's true. But obviously, I, I she doesn't count. You know, <laughs> we we talked about the amazing broken toe fact, which is the only fact in this film. There is yes, no other. That's film. the one thing that shows up on IMDb. Um, but that is sort of the thing that redirects <laughs> them because they go into Fangorn, and as you see, they for some reason casted. Sir Ian McKellen as another character. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? It's weird they did that. No. Obviously, as we find out very quickly... I once went by that name, Gandalf. I find it funny that there's the little peppering, like Treebeard at this point has, has just come into the picture. He's captured Merry and Pippin. And, yep. and he's basically like, oh, your little orcs. Uh, the White Wizard will, will say otherwise. And we're supposed to believe yep. that uh, the White Wizard's obviously Saruman. Not, yes, uh, Gandalf, and I think I did read that they like did some compositing with Christopher Lee's eyes into like the ghostly version we first see to really throw the audience off, which I thought was quite yeah. clever. And I think his voice is the also voice is Christopher merged. Lee's sort of yeah, it's like a homogenized voice. Oh, it's brilliant, it's so good. um, and it's a good way to build into it, um, you know. But obviously, it's then very quickly to reveal that it, it's Gandalf the White reincarnated. Yeah. In this Jesus esque sense, mm. biblical sense, um, and it's interesting because this is sort of one of those moments, you know, these fantastical moments that you know might have audiences groaning, but it's this, it's an interesting moment because they talk about, 
you know, they're very quick to, or Jackson's very quick to address it with the fact that he doesn't really know why he's back. Well, he knows he's back because mm-hmm. he just has to finish his task. Yeah. Um, and this comes back to that uh, divine sort of force of destiny. Um, and it, it's interesting because Gandalf's role is no longer that mentor character, but mm. a facilitator of, of sort of character growth, really. Um, and that, that kind of goes between both, you know, Two Towers and Return of the King, but we see it particularly in this film mm. as he's the one to then go, Merry and Pippin, don't worry about them. They're in good hands. That's yeah, fine. Sets them off on the different We've path. got to go deal with this thing in Rohan, and then I'm going to leave after I deal with that in <laughs> Rohan because... Aragorn, you right got to man pony. up and be. You got to man up and be a king. Um, <laughs> basically, you got to be a leader. Um, that was the first draft. And Peter Jackson was like, oh, "This is basically it. all he does is he just facilitates <laughs> the rest of the characters' arcs." I did think that. I did think like for, and I, this goes back to obviously Tolkien, the original writings and everything. But I was like, for to bring back the character from the dead, like he doesn't have a whole lot. It doesn't feel like he has a whole lot to do, at least in this film, to warrant not just writing a new character to kind of serve the same purpose. So it is interesting from that perspective. But you're right. I think it goes so much deeper into the the, the Tolkien lore and the Lord of the Rings lore that, as an audience member, I don't really question it all that much. I'm like, oh, he's back. Yeah. doesn't bother me too much. Chances are that the question of lore... Like, there was no... St- stone unturned with with Tolkien's I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure there's fantasy a... ration it was incredibly dense there was probably 46 reasons why it was okay but yeah you know well is is there a I could be wrong I could be completely wrong is there a line or some sort of thing that is referenced in fellowship of the ring that sort of alludes to the idea he could come back is there a I could you know if you strike me down I'll come back more powerful than you can possibly imagine type line in there um there is, there's always, there's definitely a line in Return of the King where they go, death is not the end. Okay. Um, and I think it's, it, it becomes very sort of clear that there's always this sort of, you know, where there's absolute evil. Mm. It's constantly said there's absolute good. Um, and there's always the, those, those forces are sort of, uh, irrevitably locked in this, this battle and, mm. and. There's a lot of obviously you know with the with the elvish sort of immortality aspect, which is another aspect of it, and there's such divine sort of wizards are these like they are constantly referred to. It's men, elves, wizards, like they're almost referred to as this different race yeah. of people. They're an incredibly small popular. They're not necessarily men in that mm. sense. Um, so yeah, who knows? There's nothing that I could think of in Fellowship that reflects that he's going to come back. Right. Um. So I think that, I mean, it might have been too much of it like a telegraph, but it could have been nice to have more of that. Not that I was bothered by it necessarily, but it it is asking a lot of your audience when you do that. Yeah. He's just back in a white robe. Yeah. <laughs> I think it comes... Got it the was, loot. Yeah, it's, the, it's sort of like the channel divinity situation where it's because he did something so divine and, and pious in, right. in taking, you know, sacrificing his life. He almost gets that second chance, but yeah. it is interesting. I will say this: the re- he is when I say he's a facilitator, it's not even just an observation. I think it's in terms of the story, that's all he basically does for the most part. Mm. Is he 
guides other characters to their growth and their their sort of story. He doesn't. He obviously fights, but his goal in this film is basically to get the help that Theoden thinks is is gone. Yeah. Well, um, that that he's yeah, like you said, he's more he's like a, a shepherd for the other characters to get to their direction, with the exception of he's essentially the one to unprocess un- um, King Theoden. Yes, and that he almost solely is the one to sort of cure him of Saruman's sort of influence and yes, control. Puppeteering with a Mister <laughs> Mister Wormtongue, very creepy. That's a, that's another great uh, great meme. You have no power over me. What what is what's the yes. line he says? You have no power here. <laughs> you have no power line. here. Um, but yeah, I mean, he de ages quick after he's unpossessed. <laughs> Yeah, and that's a, that's obviously a great point, obviously, because of Saruman's uh, puppeteering control through um, sort of the ear or sort of, of Grima Worm Tongue, mm. this sort of... Uh, the creepy dude. Creepy, creepy Hand of the King sort of dude. Um, who's, yeah, just just not a nice guy, but a bit sleazy. Um I did. I did love. Um, I think a lot of the letterbox reviews were like comparing him to Schmeagel and like, which one would you? Would... <laughs> no, no. There are a lot of thirsty letterbox okay. users on these films. I tell oh, you, um, a lot of sexualizing. But, yeah, look, it it's kind of I interesting get but it is that befallen state that has become inactive. Aemir is this the the king's uh, cousin mm. uh, king's or sorry king's nephew the niece 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 i always get those two confused nephew isn't it technically niece is it Which niece, a niece is a girl okay i genuinely don't like i've never used those words i honestly get confused sometimes yeah, which no, is weird. Nep- nephew's a boy niece he's is a the girl. nephew awen's the Third niece, niece. Yes, yeah correct. so of the king um and yeah, look, it's quite interesting because obviously, you know, that this leads to Aemir being banished, um, um, which pretty much leads the the massive sort of Rohirrim force, their their main army, to sort of follow Aemir in this sort of defense of the borders, but mm. sort of deserting their king because their kind of kingdom's lost and and Saruman's encroaching. Um, and like you said, that's kind of the only time we see that proactive action there where Gandalf. Uh, sort of clears mm. Theoden's mind. Yeah. And then goes uh, looking for Aemir's sort of aid. Um, and it, it's interesting, yeah, because he's simply there to facilitate and basically get Aragorn and obviously circumstantially Gimli and Legolas to Rohan yeah. to assist, basically. And, and that's sort of there. They, they kind of have, I mean, the most we kind of get, obviously Gimli and, and Legolas are mostly just pals and buddies that have comedy relief moments That's yeah it's, of... it's a lot of the comedy relief moments and like even doing like the big battle where it's just like him he can't see over the <laughs> yeah. little part of the bridge and he gets excited when they finally like reach up because you can he, he can actually start the, killing people their and... arc is literally that they the comic relief become friends of it. that's like their yeah. arc they become friends yeah. they move past <laughs> their prejudice in the three films and become friends yeah um and it's in the face of war, and they're in, yeah, and they're they're honestly just there for that comedic relief and entertainment aspect. With the except, there is one scene in the film mm. on this this storyline, which, to be honest, is the kind of the what I would call yeah the the blockbuster. Like you come to, you've basically mm. paid to see 
is what you paid to yeah the ticket yeah it for. is like you know you're paying for all of the big set pieces and all that and this is this is it the mo- the, the others are very uh, character driven like i said there's a lot of arcs we already talked a little bit about the other ones but um there is one bit of conflict that occurs within the party of legolas gimli and, and aragorn mm. um between legolas and and aragorn mm. out at helm's deep not to jump too f- back and forth sure because yeah. obviously there's a lot that happens um between them but that's when they kind of at, obviously Theoden, who's now been cured, um, thinks that there is no hope for getting more forces to rep ready for this basically the start of the war, mm. the first major conflict of this yeah. war. Well, that, that, I mean, that's the big difference between between Aragorn and Theoden, like their leadership styles is one is a lot more, I guess, cowardly, yeah, in, other, in a way, traditionalist, uh, reserved, mm. you know, the fact that they go back to Helm's Deep because the forefathers of Rohan have always used this fortress that's pretty much impenetrable mm. um, in previous wars. Um, and this comes back to um, sort except of... Except for a little gate. Yes, except for a little cauldron. <laughs> the that's, cauldron. That's no bigger than a... Than a <laughs> how can fire I can never stone? figure it out. Um, but it is interesting because I think what Jackson's trying to do here is comes back to this sort of how Tolkien wrote these with World War One in mind, but Jackson's kind of considered World War Two's impact. And this comes back to sort of the early inaction that the European powers, the Allies, took mm. against sort of particularly the rise of Hitler, the fact that Hitler basically retook back, or, you know, Germany got messed up with the Treaty of Versailles, and, and, and basically they pushed back, took back their military force, then took Poland, um, and... Uh, well, sorry, they took Czechoslovakia and then they were mm. like, okay, no more, don't do any more. But then they took Poland and they went, okay, we're going to go to war with you, but then didn't really go to war with them. And yeah. then that led to basically blitzkrieging France and and ended up the war, you know, putting basically uh, the UK on the brink of defeat before, you know, before too long. And mm. it's quite interesting because it's that inactive nature that the the particularly the European powers had against that sort of rising threat. The fact that Theoden doesn't think that, oh, we'll we'll go to this old fortress, um, which is kind of how the French acted when Germany was arming itself back up. Mm. They were still using tactics that were... World War One tactics, riding well, it worked horses. last time, but it might not necessarily. Yeah, work this exactly. Time. They, yeah. they were kind of patting themselves on the back for their successes in World War One that they didn't address the problem at hand until it was too late. Yeah, um, with predated strategies and and what have you. And this comes back to Theoden's decision to. Uh, we probably look. It, hmm. It's to call on on people. You know, Aim has abandoned the cause. There's no hope for him to join. Um, because we've kind of burnt all those bridges and. Obviously, this is coming off the back of Theoden you know, losing his son because of yes. uh, at the time of, of him being kind of poisoned. Well, and- that, that's the scene we kind of glossed over earlier and, and going back to this idea of like the effect war has on family and communities. That's a heartbreaking scene when he's he's like, no, you know, no father should have to bury his son. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, yeah, that obviously leads to the sort of AMA exile and, and the desertion of those, those Rohan forces, those Rohirrim and... Um, yeah, we then get to see, obviously, when Gandalf cures um, Theoden, mm. sort of towards the, the end of the first act, if you will. And, mm. um, yeah, then we get to see that moment where, basically, because he was poisoned, he was um, at, in no place to save his son. Mm. Um, um, and chances are he was probably 
quietly assassinated during the night you know there's that whole sequence with grima being like oh he must have died during the night like that's right because we stumble on the bodies yeah yeah but oh yeah that's true um so there is very much this clear sort of well did he die of natural causes or Mm. did he die of lack of help when he needed help basically and um yeah so this decision to go to helm's deep comes back because uh, he just thinks that the strategies of old going to this impenetrable, seemingly impenetrable fortress, um, underestimating Isengard's immediate meteoric rise in, in power and strength. Just the, um, the literal numbers <laughs> that yeah. are coming to the fortress. You know, he comes back to the lines at the end and says, oh, Saruman's uh, hand must have grown large if it can reach us here. Mm. Is that sort of arrogance and stubbornness to accept that these threats have kind of gone unchecked because no one, you have not kept your borders safe. And it's similar to the, the ignorance that the Gondorians are showing to Mordor mm. um, in the third film. But um, in this film, it's, it's quite interesting because uh, we're seeing sort of, uh, you know, the effects of sort of that sort of being not proactive and not having that sort of strength at the ready yeah and and even just like those shots of like aragorn watching like children wielding like trying to organize their army like wielding these swords and just like the fact that like these children they're not prepared for this at all and and they really you know jackson puts a lot of time on those those slow motion sequences Mm. of the the last minute conscriptions of these children and, and old men and yeah um that does lead to like i said that that only real conflict we see within that trio and that's when legolas kind of goes it's hopeless there's just no look at how incompetent this army is right we don't have we know the threat that's coming ten thousand strong because of what aragorn saw mm. um there is no hope and, that, and that's where that sort of Another one of them bromance conflicts happens, you know. <laughs> Aragorn says another obnoxiously honourable thing about dying <laughs> with the people. And and then they have like a little chill mo- annoying. moment of saying, oh, yeah, sorry, bro. Sorry, bro. Yeah, yeah. But it's interesting because there is one thing in that timeline that is definitively not in the books that is an active choice. Oh, interesting. Do you want to take a guess what you think it is? In oh, that but, particular but twi- storyline. Like the trio, or like this that's, whole, the Aragorn. Yeah. Okay. The tr- interesting. Um, is it the whole... Hmm. Be interesting to think what you think it is. Is it do with... Um, U- Ewan? Is that her name? Eowyn? With Eowyn? Eowyn, sorry. Is it is it do with the fact that like she's a woman that wants to fight, but she's constantly being sort of segregated with the other women and children for protection and no that, that stuff's all there that's I mean, Tolkien the actually wrote pretty strong female characters yeah um, he had a pretty... I got, like a mulan thing going on there which <laughs> she wanted Literate. to fight no, actually yeah she actually yeah, does the full mulan doesn't she <laughs> um but in eventually this film, yeah, yeah she's definitely the the maiden of, of rohan no it's the it's the elves showing up at helm's deep that does not happen in the oh books. oh i guess that makes sense that almost kind of feels like hi we're here from this other thing we meant we did once. Now we're here to help you. Yeah, it's definitely that. Uh, <laughs> I kind of. I, I guess I, that makes sense. Because Jackson talks about it in the sort of the extended behind the scenes stuff. He kind of goes, "It's interesting because they go to Lothlorien. Galadriel gives all of these presents. Yeah. Um, and obviously they're they're a you know they're a breed of el- like they're a race of elves. Um, Legolas is from the Mirkwood 
sort of race, which we see in the Hobbit films, what mm. Mirkwood is. And, okay. and obviously Elrond's the Rivendell sort of elves. So they're all from like three different kind of creeds of elves. But it is interesting because it feels... The decision is, now watching it from that analytical point of view, it is a little odd that they show up. <laughs> it show makes up. Hey, it kind of makes sense because it's like that. And I, the decision was that the elves don't really take part in... The, this conflict, this lord, right. this war of the rings. You know, this is meant to be the war for Middle Earth, but the only elf we see take like part Legolas. is Legolas. Yeah, and that's quite odd. Now, well, this is part of the fellowship, man. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I kind of get it because you've got this, like this Haldir, you know, who we meet once in Lothlorien, and he yeah. just basically shows up with this this troop of elves who are willing to die in what is going to seemingly be a massacre. Which is quite interesting because, um, but it, it kind of pl- plays into the sort of passive but also committal nature that Elrond kind of has, and even Galadriel to an extent, mm. in this war, despite knowing that they are going to be leaving Middle Earth. But it's it's interesting because obviously the 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 big scene that alludes to this decision to you know send this little army of of elves to assist at the battle of helm's deep mm. is that galadriel was essentially having this telepathic conversation with elrond being like well we're leaving but it would be kind of dog if we don't send anyone <laughs> <laughs> everyone else is getting in on this war yeah um and it is you know and i say that because then you go oh where are all the dwarves in all this but there is there are lines peppered in the second and the third film that allude to there's a there's actually a battle going on in the northern part oh, of Oh, interesting. Particularly and you know we the get, northern island of uh, New Zealand. Well, it, it's actually in, like the Blue Mountain. <laughs> it's actually and there's a video game that kind of actually follows Battle for Middle Earth too. Um, it's actually oh. the sort of the parallel conflict that's happening that adds a lot to do with the dwarves. Interesting. Um, up in the up in the north. And a bit of the elves up there too. So, fun fact: that's actually what's happening up in the in the northern part. That's why. But it is cool to see this because you kind of get that sort of callback to the the epilogue scene of or the prologue scene of of fellowship, where we mm. see that alliance of men and elves sort of fighting in in Mordor, and you know. Oh, okay, I guess yeah, it's an establishing. There, there there's definitely like enough there to justify. It's a little odd, like. I think it's not even so much like the wider narrative convenience in them showing up. I think it's just the way it's literally edited into the just that scene where it's like, "Hello, everything's we're really here dire," now. and it's like, "Yeah, look, we'll give you a little bump." You still got it. Is about six hundred <laughs> now? A little against, bump. It's like six hundred against a thousand, yep. ten thousand. But you know, exactly. it's um a little bit more believable than three hundred against ten thousand, <laughs> where most of them are old men and, and children. children. Yeah. To be honest, if anything, it just allows there to be more death shots, I think. It just That's ad- true. That's adds to true. that blockbustery kind of yeah. popcorn. Because eventually you run out of characters to die without that extra helping hand. For, honestly, from an analytical point of view, this part of the narrative is the one that I enjoy the most in terms of entertainment value, but is the one I get the least emotional out of, I think. Sure. Um, it very much is the the popcorn kind of... You've, you've paid to see some battles and, yeah. and some real feats of physical productions, which we talked about last mm. time, and in this one, uh, technical brilliance. You know, you've talked about the Gollum stuff, but 
the the CGI and the Helm's Deep and getting the numbers. That's true. Yeah, just the the, the thousands and thousands of I guess orcs that are like the charging towards the yeah. the fortress. And, it's so cool. But even just like all the the geography or the blocking of it and just keeping a battle like that interesting and and like you can track it and like without without too much dialogue or telegraph and you can kind of tell at which point where the where the odds are in whose favor and i love the just the immediate switch the power dynamic when it and it's almost like on the line i think it's it's um i think it's the line feared and says where he's oh is this all he has and immediately the hawk comes in i'm gonna blow this shit out of this grate it's you know and obviously like you said we're we're talking about how cool it is like you said they, they seemed obviously this is that impenetrable the impenetrable fortress which you know is akin to the the order the whole um border guns that france had against germany like oh there's no yeah. way they're gonna there's no way they're gonna get past <laughs> these guns it's impenetrable <laughs> they wouldn't dare with their small army um yeah. And yeah, they they neck minute blitzkrieged the Helm's Deep Wall. <laughs> um, oh goodness! But it's true. But it's a great moment though in the scene because oh, like, just... like the whole wall just explodes. It's a, this complete shift in like oh god, and it, we're completely and outnumbered. It's now. brilliant from a lot of ways because, like you said, it has it's you know the music in in the all three of these films is incredible, but in this one it has these blaring horns of of that go in in sort of rhythmic timing mm. with these industrializations that ha- particularly first occur in Isengard but lead all the way through this particularly the central plot um, yeah. um and in that moment when the berserker torchbearer jumps into the into the crevice cuz Legolas couldn't get the job done um, yeah we got and he got at least a few shots in there um but they show like how Basically, these berserkers just don't feel... They don't feel pain, and they don't yeah. care if they die. They are... Well, they're, they're literally engineered to do one thing. They're like a... Kamikaze. Exactly. Um, to and, kill. And, but in that moment where all that music's occurring, and the, 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 the sort of the diegetic, it all ceases just to hear that explosion. Mm. And then it comes back as we look at the shock and horror on Theoden's faces. Yeah. He, as he did a boo boo, he said the thing. I might, that have, spo- I, I might have spoke too soon. <laughs> but in, he says something stupid, and something stupid happens. <laughs> what just, did you expect? He's just incompetent. But, but the other thing I love about even just the leading of that scene, there's that moment from like the narrative perspective, but also the the as an audience member knowing like I'm about to experience like a feat of filmmaking, yeah. is is when they're all lined up, ready and prepared as the as the whole like. You know, it's the thousands and thousands of creatures are slowly approaching, and you get like but, a hacker going. Yeah, <laughs> but what's, that's what it's inspired by oh, the, the, the the stamping and stuff because so many of the stuntmen were like Kiwis, like oh, Maoris. They were like, yes, it was kind of like their version of a hacker to get that in there. Yeah, that no, I love that. War, I love just a little uh, patriotic thing in there. Yeah. But what I love, especially with the editing in that scene, is that they, they are constantly cutting away from that to the women and children i guess in like an underground bunker yes, and in the just, caves yeah and the, and just like they can the fact that you can still hear everything from their point and like they're they're still close enough to the danger that it that it's scary and if they do 
um you know uh break through the fortress that they they their lives are all at risk as well yeah so it's, it's brilliant to just remind the audience of like they're, they're, this is what's at stake not just our heroes but all of these characters as well i think it's, it is interesting and i i think the reason why people quite like this battle mm. and they think this film kind of can be this standout is because like you said the complexity of the helm's deep battle you know we've we've now seen this this refuge of of uh rohan's people move across the lands to this refuge that's meant to seemingly save their lives um they've had turmoil along the way characters have almost died and then Mm. and sort of survived and um but then to have yeah like you said these sequences where not only do we see them move into the caves where all of the women and children are but then to see the conscription of of the young and the old and, mm. and then to see that constant intercutting to where Eowyn who's looking after the refuge but we don't see a lot of Eowyn's reactions we see a lot of just no. these random people's reactions almost to get this real idea of the stakes you know we've seen not only have we seen these families have children taken away from them yeah. or, or long-time partners but then we watch a lot of them get killed. Mm. Like Jackson doesn't shy away from that, no. you know? Um, and then also to see these, when these moments happen in the battle, like you said, when, when they're doing that sort of war cry, mm. we're hearing it from that perspective and just the sheer yeah, holo- from horror. From the people who are like defenseless to it. Yeah. It's that, it's, it's like sitting in a bomb shelter mm. in the, you know, in the middle of those wars. It's just genuinely horrifying. And the other films don't put as much emphasis on, on the civilian aspect uh, no, as this one. No, And... Because, uh, like, with Fellowship of the Ring, you're really focusing on, you start with the Shire, which yeah. is the closest you get to, like, the innocent sort of civilian uh, town, if you will, the closest you're going to get to that. And that the journey in that film is all about removing oneself from that, especially with Frodo, and entering essentially enemy dangerous territory, the unknown. The unknown. And for here, you're right. In in the second film, there's a so much more emphasis on on the the communities and the villages and the and the, li- and the, f- the livelihood that the war farm has, boy, <laughs> yeah, that has on civilians. And they, they do they set that precedent really early on with we seeing Rohan under attack in ruin, and we're seeing a random. A uh, boy and his sister get Gets evacuated. Sent off, yeah. Um, Separated from their mother, and that's so important because it carries through. We see the the effect that war will have on on a populace and yeah. on a people. Um, and in this film in particular, the importance of that is because this is the first definitive line in the sand battle with the War of the Ring, yeah. basically. Um, whereas the the film preceding it is the war is in full effect mm. you know that the impact that it's going to have on civilians but you're not going to see the weight of it as much no. um or at least address as much because there'll be just too much other things going on so mm. i think that that is really important um and it definitely adds weight to like you said the ebbs and flows of the battle and, and the geography that's such a great thing to address because we cover the whole helm's deep over the course of the sequence, over yeah. the course of the film. Well, even like the sideways staircase that you see in the wide angles, and then obviously those are, you know, tail-ended when they, when they run the horses down the stairs through the orcs. And, and it's, it's truly, it's immaculate when mm-hmm. you think about it. Not many films really have that geography laid out and use every inch of it. You know, if there's a big battle in a castle, it's 
bit on the walls sometimes. It's a bit of this and that. And I think that there's great inspiration that this what this film does for sort of blockbuster war and battle and all this. Mm. And, um, often we only follow follow our characters journey through the battle not cut yeah. to random people as much and i don't think any any film has done it as good as the helm's deep deep sequence yeah, I, I think wow. game of thrones has had great inspiration from what jackson oh, yeah. did um with their elongated episodes that were just big battles and they were brilliant but i think that they don't it's that sort of you know it doesn't happen unless someone like him comes along. And this film mm. has so many firsts. Like we were talking about with Gollum at the start of this conversation, you know, they're the first to really take, you know, challenge this sort of point of view and, and this innovation. And mm. two years later or three years later, what probably even more than that, maybe three or four years later, they perfected it with Davy Jones yeah. with Pirates of the Caribbean. So about, yeah, four years, four to five four years, years later. Yeah. So, um, but that doesn't happen unless this Gollum stuff happens. Oh, know? absolutely. So it's it's huge. It's a film. huge part of the step. And it's obviously not the film. I mean, you can go way back to like films like Tron in terms of the use of CG. But you're right, in terms of a fully CG character having such a large presence in the film in terms of screen time, in terms of their role in the story, the amount of... Yeah. Um, the the words they get to speak not only to other live action characters and actors but to themselves and make it all believable yeah it's it's a huge milestone in in the journey that leads so you're right it's something like planet of the apes absolutely um, and now we just get ant-man and the wasp quantum mania where they just don't care anymore i want to mention i guess before we get to our highlight scenes we haven't talked a lot about faramir and i, I think because a, a gigantic important piece of his story only happens in the extended edition of the film. Possibly the the biggest scalp <laughs> and most confusing scalp is a, in the whole trilogy. I I think so. Mm. I think that the, this scene is the scene. Obviously, now I've seen the extended cut, and there are things that adds so it explores things like Aragorn's age as a Dunedain ranger and right. particularly that relationship he develops with Eowyn where he's a is the scene a, when he pretends to like the stew, is it stew, yeah. the stew yeah. um <laughs> he's like no. swear to god it takes him like 25 seconds to say anything drinking yeah. that it's so great it's and it's one of those sequences that you you look at that and go yep yeah, that's totally an extended sequence or there was one with Treebeard being like uh, talking about the end women, and they couldn't remember where the end women are. Like, <laughs> um, and you're like, that's a that's a good law scene. Doesn't add too much to the the story. Yeah, um, if you need to get it under three hours, it's pretty cuttable. Especially exactly. when it takes a long time to say things. <laughs> um, but obviously, so, so it must be really important when to, they do say yes. it. Yes. <laughs> um, but like you said, there's this scene after Frodo, Sam, and and Gollum eventually is is captured by the Athelian Rangers, mm. who are led by Faramir, who is the little brother of Boromir. Yeah. Um, where we kind of get a look into uh, basically the dynamic and and a, a a scene that precedes obviously the Fellowship of the Ring, where. Uh, the Gondorians have taken Osgiliath, which is basically the the border city to Minas Tirith, their like home, mm. um, which has constantly been this worn torn state between Mordor and and Gondor over yep. the years. And obviously, we get this moment where Boromir gives this like really epic, powerful speech, where it's a real hurrah moment. 
Um, but the more important aspect is, like you said, is after is we get to see this this lovely brotherly love, mm. which um, and obviously paints Boromir, Sean Bean's character, in this really positive sort of enriching, nurturing light. You know, he's not yeah, arrogant. It's, it's definitely the nicest we see him, and, and just you know, ah, oh, that was a short speech. Yeah, more time for drinking, and just yeah. like those exchanges are really wholesome. It's like I don't remember that level of like not nicety but like enthusiasm from his character in the original film so it's a whole new side to him there's, there's there is there's one sequence in fellowship where he's like playing with mary and pippin and they're like kicking him and he's laughing oh that's true and yeah. it is uh, that's quite warming um but this is like the, like the brotherly love it's a whole nother there's level. Sort of strain in that the characters already undergo in fellowship yeah. whereas yeah, like you said, we're catching this moment where everything's kind of gone well. and Remember this moment, brother. Yeah, and it's beautiful. <laughs> and, and of course, then it's ruined by their stupid dad rocking up, <laughs> um, who is the uh, caretaker of, of, sorry, the kingdom of Gondor. He's the steward, um, yeah. Denethor, and who is nothing more really than just sort of a uh, an old man who's just sort of enjoying his monarchical privileges, yeah. basically, and vicariously living through particularly his firstborn as he mm. astutely says Boromir and clearly loves his second son so much. <laughs> uh, there's there's not, not overt at all. Yeah. And it but what's really good about that scene is is the moment when they see him and Boromir is the one who's like, oh, can you just give us a moment? Like, he doesn't even really like his dad. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's nice to see like, his brother's coming to his defence. Yeah, and is quick to defend him in that in that scene. And we sort of see basically all of the reasons why Boromir comes to Rivendell mm. um, and sort of says the things he says at that Council of Elrond meeting. Right. Because basically Denethor has, has kind of pushed all of those notions on him um, in what he represents for Gondor. That the ring has to come here. Yeah, yeah, and be uh, and be this sort of symbol of power for our people, um, and sort of that obviously gets explored in in greater detail in the third film, as we see Denethor is a an actual character, and I think the reasons mm. they've cut it is because they've introduced this character that gets kind of reintroduced in Return of the King. I see. So um, yeah, but also. But I, I agree with you in the, in the sense that the amount of context it gives for, for both of those characters, for Boromir in the first one and then Faramir in this one, and particularly yeah. why and he's chasing Frodo. Even Denethor, knowing after, especially because we, you know, Faramir reveals to Sam and Frodo that Boromir's dead. Yeah. That's yeah. a great scene. Yeah. it's a, And that's interesting because that comes back to that beautiful parallel intertwining narrative mm. that characters on the journey of one kind of know stuff about the other yeah um and that plays even more so in return of the king but that's one of the first times we see oh something that's happened in the first film these characters because their subjective discourse didn't know about it yeah and like you said it gives the, the sort of great performances um and vice versa but you're 100 right it does elevate it doesn't it yeah well i i remember you watching the two towers this time compared to the first time like having such a much stronger like understanding of Faramir and like what he's doing with Frodo and Sam and when and when he finally figures out the ring is on his person. And it's like, it just makes such a more interesting dynamic. But like you said, it also completely recontextualizes the first film, Boromir's actions. So it just boggles my mind that it didn't make the theatrical And it cut. elevates the film, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean it elevates that whole story, why they go to Osgiliath and 
particularly then reinforces further why Faramir makes his, his decision. He's actually stronger than Boromir. Yes. Because he's actually... He's the one that sort of lets them go, He lets them go out of, out of sort of his decision. Um, and, and that's how he was served. His quality, Zeke. Yeah. <laughs> prove his quality, He did prove say. his quality. And then yeah. he choked out Gollum. <laughs> um, but that's it you as know, you do and, and to be honest that's probably leading into that sort of i don't want to spoil any highlight scenes because it might be that that the particular some of the last oh, sequences interesting but obviously you know as we get to the the end of all three stories we see you know at helm's deep they've been pushed like back to the throne room and in osgiliath frodo is heavily succumbing to the ring's powers and almost mm. single-handedly hands it. kills Sam. Yeah, almost... Yeah, that's it. That's, that's when it gets real. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, But it does. It feels heavy in that moment. And it really feels like we kind of are at our darkest point for a lot of... And, and Treebeard, who under Pippin's sort of cheeky mis, like redirection, yeah. is you know, sort of he's, awoken he's, uh, to reverse psychology almost the the systematic um and burgeoning genocide of his people, the the, the trees. Mm. Um in a world that he th- in a war that he thought and his ent folk Did, wouldn't affect them. Wouldn't affect them. And oh that's a that scene is just that hits. That's a great scene. It's yeah. another one of those situations you Rise got these of the ants. massive scores. <laughs> But the moments when Jackson chooses to just let the diegetic ambience of, um, like big moments like the wall coming through or mm. Treebeard's revelation when he sees nothing but chopped down trees, yeah. Um, sometimes, sometimes the scene plays more powerfully when you expect there to be music, and then there isn't. Yeah, but then he brings it back itself. when he has that that scream, that guttural scream, yeah. um, which is so powerful. And and, and here's the—I mean, we haven't even talked about it, but it's a, it's John Reese Davis. It is, voice. yeah. You know, and I remember reading about there's like almost no automation uh, or reverbation in there. It's like I think he's just using a really deep he, voice, in his and it's like a wooden yeah. microphone they're recording with, something yeah. like that. It's like a in Incredible. behind the scenes. That's what he said. He's like, yeah, just change his voice. But what a odd choice! Like, I find that very unique. Why would you cast the same person? Like, it's I, it genu- kind of speaks more to that. I was, you know, I was thinking about the Simpsons this morning. The fact it's like the the vast, vast, vast majority of Simpsons characters, the regulars, are done by the same six people. Yeah, and it, it almost feels more like a family from a production standpoint when you get the same people to do the same like multiple roles or they serve multiple purposes and i i reckon that's part of it because i remember there I reckon a, peter jackson just liked him a lot there's a bit in the behind the scenes where they kind of address it where they're like it is does seem like an odd choice because this isn't a fifteen thousand dollar film this is a <laughs> they had the money to hire another actor film yes it could have been anyone really um but, but I, but the, the, we see i mean kind of the same without getting too much into the third film is that we see a little bit of that with andy circus um, mm. where it's like he does sort of get a moment to shine in live action, but then, but then also what's the oh yeah, but the, but then King Kong a couple of years later, Andy Circus is not only King Kong, but he plays a human character in the film as well. He plays two different characters. Yeah. So and, that, and that, I think that's just Peter Jackson. He when you like that. something, you like something. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair, they do sound. You play two characters in Disconnected, Zeke. I did. I did. <laughs> Look, some of us. 
Some of us have a bigger range. What can I say? <laughs> Some of us are capable to be in the same scene twice. There you go. Um, I know, the same I, I needed scene. to start rocking up in there. I couldn't do it in Skin and Blister because of the, the narrative, but I should just right. start appearing in your films. <laughs> <laughs> Actively get in them as much as possible. Um, I, I could totally... To be fair, in Skin and Blister, we easily could have had it, but just during one of the like really deep uh, monologue scenes that you just like walk past the car. And you're just in the background. Yeah. I think I... Or you walk, I, in, you walk inside I, the church. I used to think, oh, I'd like to be an actor-director, but I'm very happy behind the camera now. I think Fair I enough. think my acting days are, are, they are over? done, I um, think. Maybe. We'll see. We'll see. Who knows? You'll play Treebeard in my adaptation of Lord of the Rings. Oh, okay. Okay. Can you say, do the voice? Uh, no, probably not. I'm not that low. <laughs> uh, be a very bogey Treebeard. But it is such a powerful sort of moment and obviously leads to that really cool like the last march of the ends there you go there, um, there it's the voice yeah um which is so it's still that scene is still it's not my highlight scene but it's still just like one of the coolest scenes and it's almost like a comedic aspect as well when like the rest of the orcs are chased into the bush and is it legolas that says like oh like like nobody go in there yeah pretty much yeah and and you just see with that wide angle just all the trees <laughs> just start shaking like ah! That's extended. Like, that's all extended. Is it really? That's all extended. Ah, oh, because like that feels pivotal. That's like that's like the final. Well, it's kind of like period in I the sentence of that, of that battle. When, when Theoden goes, we have victory. It's kind of like we just assume they've killed all the orcs. That's um, true. I guess like you don't need it. Like, but obviously, yeah. Seeing that, yeah. there and that's that beautiful bit where he's like, where the hobbits like, oh, where are those trees going? They have business with the orcs. Mm. It's just it, the best part with Treebeard is. And the beauty that this is Tolkien's writing, but also Jackson's, what he's done with that character is that whole idea of, of if it doesn't take a long time to say, then it's not worth saying. But yeah. he has some of the coolest lines, like where, like the way he says it, and particularly that sequence where he's like, my business is with Isengard with a rock and stone. And you're just like, <laughs> they're both the same thing, but it's cool. Like, yeah, yeah. There's just something cool about that that final sequence. Mm. And obviously, Christopher Lee is, is pretty limited in his performance in this film. But he, he basically just kind of is like, Watching and leering over yeah, he's, things. He, he's kind of the great. Does he even? Oh, he has lines. He has. Lines, oh, he, he has he one of the coolest scenes. He though. does. He does. Is like, it when he reveals his army? Yeah, That's and crazy. gives that speech that once there's there are so many scenes you could be like, "That's my highlight scene," but they're just moments that are genuinely cool. Once again, like mm. he subsides the music when Saruman starts speaking, brings it back in. Yeah, and we get that sheer scope of of the war is about to start. And this is what we've seen the pitiful effort that mm. Rohan's putting together. And we see this moment where we get this authoritarian dictator speech. And he said one of his inspirations was Hitler's sort of yeah, rallying speeches. In the, you know, and obviously Christopher Lee's got this voice that's just like... It's a booming voice. Yeah. But I think the power... The only scene, cast member to have met Tolkien in real life. Yeah. That's Did you know Aragorn broke his toe? <laughs> 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 um, I was shocked we didn't say that last week, but I thought that was an opportunity to say it then. Yeah, but it's it is one of those, and I think what makes hey, that scene toe, so yeah. powerful is actually it's it's not just the 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 war crying; it's the fact that it cuts to Grima, who's just like overwhelmed, and he starts to the like, single a tear. tear. I love <laughs> it. Awesome. It's so good. Like it's that genuine like fear of the dam being released. Yeah. 
It's so beautiful, but also, oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. And obviously having that sort of sequence of the Ents taking back Isengard and literally releasing a dam and... Um, yeah, that's a great scene. Wreck the dam. Hold on. Is Mary so and Pippin are holding on at the top of him. And it's great for Mary and Pippin. They end up just smoking pipe weed and eating food. Oh, they get their happy ending with the. They do. They do. It's, it's kind of nice because so after true. all of this, like we said, the darkest of dark nights, and there's this weird. There's this. Obviously, Mary and Pippin have this quite a very levity, like a light hearted ending to yeah. their story in this this particular chapter. The Shire whereas, Rats. Yeah, whereas obviously like Aragorn's <laughs> timeline is like, oh, the war started, we've got to be ready. Like we're we're happy, but we're we're on the verge of like, oh, like this is about to get real. We need to kind of mm-hmm. put our game faces on. But then and, you get that with Sam's monologue in that same moment. Oh, he's about to cry. It's just so beautiful. <laughs> it's, it, it's his darkest just before the dawn speech. Yeah, and yeah, it's that's, almost, that's my highlight scene. It's yeah, it's perfect. fair enough. It's, it's the yeah. it's the perfect intersection of all three in that montage and Sean Astin's and it comes it's off the back delivered. of Frodo about to kill him, about to kill him. And there's something about Sean Astin's earnestness in these films. Yeah, and it's just so it's so warming. I'm your Sam. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's a little, it's a little cute. It's just, a, but it, he is just cute. like he's this little pudgy, cute, like yeah. just lovable character that he really is. Who just genuinely wants the best for his friend, and you know wants to do kind of his bit. But it's the speech is is just amazing, where he's talking about like yeah, all those stories where things got to get really dark before they get really. The, those good. are the stories we remember the most. They had the biggest impact on us, and it feels like a message almost to the audience, who might be thinking they're they're watching the end of Empire Strikes Back. Of remember then mm. there was that another chapter, and they all lived happily ever after. And like we're we're gonna have that too. Just hold on, hold on for a few more hours. Watch the last chapter. Yeah. It's Coming a, to cinemas next year, <laughs> and they, you know, and obviously their final—they all get kind of the like I said, their final sort of moment is obviously we sort of see Gollum has kind of come back to the forefront and is mm. kind of driving the ship there and has ill intentions, but we get a nice little bit of levity between Frodo and Sam where they're talking about what what will they be like in the storybooks? Like, will people talk about them? Yeah, the and that characters. genuine appreciation. You couldn't have done Frodo, it without Sam. It's just so beautiful. Sam, make Sam a, is the just, best side he's, he's the best. He's just the best. He, he's the best companion character in all of film. There Aww. was no one. There's no one better than than Sean Astin's Sam. Come now, Mister Frodo. To be honest, like let's be real. He's like, and even Mr. when he's Frodo. in Stranger Things, like for those like five or six episodes. Yeah, he's very endearing. He's just in that so endearing too. and lovely. And then he gets eaten. <laughs> Stranger Things still confuses me. Like, what? What is? What is going on? They in the- they kill off the weirdest characters, or they they kill off slash like like Sadie Sink should be dead by now. Come on, in in the series, oh, yeah. yeah, she gets well, she gets turned into a pretzel in the last. I think yeah, and then, I like, genuinely her, don't. Her eyes got like ripped out, but then Eleven's just like, I'm just gonna like stare at you, and you're gonna be fine again. Her eyes get ripped out. So I, I remember her, like her eyes. I feel like she's blind, and then she like unblinds her at the end. I don't remember. I don't, I don't remember getting blind. I remember her getting her legs crinked like she can't move anything. 
Yeah, no, that happens. But then like she's also, get... in that same moment, she's blinded as well. Her eyes like get pierced in. Or I know it's. I up. I really I genuinely, not to get too tangential, but I, I don't <laughs> get the, I don't get the Stranger Things thing. I thought it was fine, but it's not like this whole generation that's coming through. Jack, they're obsessed with it. I don't mm. know why. It's just it's okay, it's not even good. Like it's okay sometimes. It's because it's eighties, but it's modern. Mm. Jesus yeah. Christ. Well, my highlight scene, and we talked about it a little bit, it has to be the scene earlier with Gollum. Sort of the first time we, we he feels like he's actually banished the Gollum side of his Schmeagle personality. And, but the, the, the way that scene, it's the, it is the simplest trick in the filmmaker's toolbox. Just the, the shot reverse shot. They establish it with a bit of a slider shot to establish the eye line and, and the fact that he's in the same position, but we're looking at it from two different perspectives to represent the split. But it's just, it's so simplistic and it's so brilliant. And yeah. it's like, for something like the Lord of the Rings, you look at the source material, the amount that it seems so impossible to achieve in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, to dawn to make these into feature films and the amount of CG required. I mean, sure, Gollum himself is a CG character, but they don't use that to... It's the physicality of the actor mm. and it's the, the way the camera is just being placed yeah, and how how the image is and cut. It's the simplest look, tools. I, I'll attest, you know, like... But I will take these films that have, for the most part, really good CGI with some weirder or some dated, more dated-looking oh, moments. Yes. But I will take that any over, day over what... Is being done became, today. What became of even The Hobbit to an extent, where mm. it became so reliant on its CGI um, and its show. And yeah, there are still moments where CGI is used brilliantly and effectively in those films, but it's that over reliance, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it comes. It. I think it just looks so much more brilliant. The fact that I know for a fact that it's like with the Helm's Deep stuff. That shot in a quarry and there was about 200 stuntmen who would go up the ladders, get clocked off and then yeah. land on a mat only to do it all again in like <laughs> the next 60, take, yeah. 70 pounds. No, in the same shot, those shots oh, where Gimli's like going like, doof, doof. They, yeah. That's them just on repeat. Oh, that's so good. But it's like, that's 70 pound armor and they would like hit the floor, get back up and do it again. And they would just do no, it. I, do I am it in complete 1 million percent agree with you that, 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 that what makes these films so special, and there's probably something we should say for the third film, but is, is the, the time and place they were made. And it's like, maybe they could have been made like four or five years later when the, maybe the, the CG tech was just that slightly edge better but then like that wouldn't exist the, the lord of the rings needs to exist as a stepping stone for the technology that came before yeah. it but you're right if it was made any earlier it would all be too corny and, and maybe you know the costumes and the cg elements that would all just like not work mm-hmm. and if it was made any later it might have succumbed to what most films are now which is just yeah. too much cgi not enough budget people, not enough time people not even in costumes just getting their exactly cgi'd on Exactly. And I think there's, honestly, there is a fine balance and, and, you know, to sort of bookmark it with the first half of the show, I think Star Wars has tried to go back the opposite way with a lot of its stuff. It's Adding tried practicality to back to it. Absolutely. I think the, the big part of that Filoni Star Wars is, is having such a great emphasis on having that perfect balance between when there's time to use CGI, when is there time to mm. use digital backdrops with the sort the of volume. Ro- with the um, rotations, and then mm. when is it time to make it physical 
got to make it tactile, got to make yeah. it real. Um, and Lord of the Rings was one of the best at doing all of that. Mm. Um, and did come at that time where I actually think in that early tens, tens into sort of the late tens period, right. 2010s, is that's where we've had our biggest problem, where we've had that massive CGI uh, codependence. Yeah, um, and- it's interesting because I, I probably would have agreed with you in the sense that, oh, maybe there was a version when the Lord of the Rings came out in like 2012 um, where they, they retained the level of practice the practical sets and costumes and designs and creatures and all of that, but with like sharper CGI, because I think that's the thing you probably would notice watching these is the CGI. It's all very like soft focus almost like it doesn't feel sharp and the textures don't feel as layered um, or as detailed, but the Hobbit came out in 2011 and 2011 no yeah, it was 2011 or 2013 or it, uh, you might you might be You're around the mark. i think it was 13 14 15 if i oh no no 12 13 14 i think yeah. i think that was it but even like you said the hobbit kind of does suffer from that oh, it's just a little too digital yeah. unexpected journey to, well it has moments where it goes a bit too far but it, it probably keeps the balance enough um by the time they get to that battle of the five armies though it's it's just cgi litter mm. it feels like it's <coughs> shocking how much of it is just so dependent on that cgi and um so I, I think you're right in the terms of these films they came out at the perfect time and like i said you could be like oh maybe it could have came out in like 2006 but like when we think of 2006 and davy jones and it's like well those wouldn't exist without got golem argue, i mean that franchise has done the exact same thing though it's earlier renditions had a struck a balance Very between practical. CGI and practical yeah. and it worked really well. But by the time you get to was the fifth one, it's just, it's lazy. Sure. Than anything. Yeah. It definitely has way too much CGI or the dependence on artificial sets and that sort of like, that sort of digitalized sets. I mm. mean, and, and I just think there's a significant difference in that. Um, Cause it's cheaper too. Ultimately. I, I, yeah. And I think, I think the big reason now that it becomes cheaper is because you still got to pay a lot of staff and everything for CG and and their artists and their talent. But the thing is, because we're in a world where CG artists, it's all it's a fight to the bottom of the barrel. Mm. It's you know who can do it the cheapest and the fastest. Risk assessment too. Yeah, I mean, there's the, that aspect too. So it ultimately becomes so much cheaper because you can make so many different changes at the last second without having to pony up for those changes. Mm. Unlike practical where. You know, oh, we, I want to change the detail about their costume. You need to reshoot the whole scene. Yeah. But, um, it, so it I, becomes cheaper through that and labor yeah. and debt, which goes to say that the, the writer's strike got solved. I know. We didn't even talk about that this week. We but, didn't. Um, but it kind of, but it, you know, that's a great time to kind of bring it up because I'm thinking back to watching, like, like I said, those behind the scenes where there's stuntmen who are getting lobbed off and then having to go mm. back up and lob down. A lot of kind of unions that they have. Well, I was about to say, I really feel like these films in particular felt like there was such a because, especially two and three, a block shot, Mm. um, and one's very close in association. There's there was that labor of love there. There was a genuine love in the crew, and just an absolute. You know, the Odyssey. It's eighteen months of continual shooting. Wow, and it's just baffling when you think about that. Where this was their lives for that period of time. And it's not mm. just the main cast, the fellowship, or even even any of the B. This is all of the extras, you know, these stuntmen yep. that were putting on prosthetics for four hours a day and then mm. going and working for eight and then having two to three hours to take the prosthetics off. Like, 
and they just kept doing it and they just kept doing it and yeah. it's... when you commit yourself when when thousands of people collectively commit to a, a project of this size and just give it their everything like it's it's powering like we've been on short films that were like three or four days where you sort of get you you get that feeling for the the people involved and you all like worked so hard on this thing yeah, and times that by a million <laughs> for something like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. He's definitely someone, and I know we did the director's corner last week. But the more you, I watch these films, and you know, we're gonna finish this this journey off next week. But mm. the more I, I like watch these films, the more I go like, wow, this is like one of those directors that obviously you still want directors to keep making stuff. But yeah. when you see this trilogy, you're just sort of like, yeah, but he'd never have to make something ever again, really, because. You're Cre- so... like, creatively, you would be so fulfilled and satisfied yeah. because, and your yeah. reputation would never die down. No, because they're just they're remarkable, yeah, and exceptional. The Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers is currently out on Netflix. Yeah, um, it's also out on Prime Video binge, which is weird because I'm pretty sure the first one's on Stan. No, <laughs> keep it extra, and cool. the second one isn't. It's very weird. But again, I think these are all the theatrical versions. I think mean, you have to buy the extended versions. Yes. That's okay. Because those are, those are all right too. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas near us? Uh, there's a few interesting ones coming out. Um, speaking of Stan, we've got the Oscar-winning documentary Navalny, which we actually talked about earlier this year. So we you did. can listen to that podcast. Uh, on Netflix, we've got a few documentaries, including Race to the Summit and Beckham that are respectively about alpine climbers and the football star, the titular football star. There you go. you got a bender like him, Zeke. Um, and also, a film that I mentioned came to cinemas last week. It must have been like a Netflix... We must be in that era where Netflix is like putting films out they think are going to win Oscars for like a week uh, in cinemas and they bring them straight to Netflix. Uh, Fair Play, which was like that sexy throat-cut business couple thing that I mentioned last week. Uh, so that's coming to Netflix this week. Uh, we also got T. West's Pearl, which I've been wanting to watch for a long-ass time, the sequel to X, which comes to Netflix and Binge. Uh, so there you go, multiple ways Excellent. to watch it. We also got Spielberg's The Fablemans coming to Prime and Binge this week. Very good. Um, it's funny, the um, the place we stayed at in Bustleton, me and Kirsty, they had films, uh, they had two film channels. Well, they actually mm. they had three. They had two film channels and then like a kid's film channel that just seemed to only play cars on repeat nice which uh, i wouldn't complain about um but the fablemans was one of them oh nice yeah and the whale so some relatively mon- banshees of inner sharon i guess it's pretty new stuff i was impressed i was like yeah pretty pretty another month from now they might have barbie and oppenheimer who knows there you go so i was very impressed by that um coming to disney plus this week the first i guess first episode of loki season two wow do we care no Moving Fair on. Fair enough. <laughs> Kiwi Kwan's in it. That's cool. Okay. But, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to watch it. Uh, and also, 2023's The Boogeyman is coming to Disney Plus this week. Coming to cinemas, we talked about David Gordon Green earlier, and now his version of The Exorcist, called The Exorcist Believer, comes to cinemas. It sees two little girls begin to show signs of demonic possession and sees a single father, Victor Fielding, the only person alive... Uh, sorry, sees him seeking the only person alive to witness anything like this, Ellen Burstein's Chris McNeil. So she's back. There you go. There's a lot of people very excited about this. Yeah, well, did all right with the first Halloween film. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Like, I went, like we, we had many issues with the follow-up 
Halloween films. But oh, yes. The 2018 one's great. Yeah. Perfect, perfectly good uh, popcorn horror, you know? Yeah, we love it. The Expend Four Bulls. Star Sylvester cool. Stallone, Jason Safer, Megan Fox, and 50 Cent. They are, <laughs> they are running out of cool people to cast in these films. Jesus Christ. Who's going to go watch this? I, very old people, I guess. Okay. I don't know. Uh, Free Chords and the Truth is an Australian musical inspired by the story of Jackie Marshall. Sees a terminally ill woman meet a 17-year-old runaway from home and teaches her how to play guitar as a way... Uh, I wrote way to health. I figure like a way to heal. Oh, okay. Or like to... Yeah, you get the idea. Sort of a nice feel-good drama. We shall see. Yep. And finally, Sick of Myself is playing exclusively at Luna this week. It sees uh, Singe? Signe? I think it's Signe. Uh, who is increasingly overshadowed by her boyfriend's recent rise to fame as a contemporary artist and hatches a vicious plan to reclaim her rightfully deserved attention. It seems quite um, quirky. Yes. Like the poster is her like completely covered in bandages like a mummy. So it's uh, it's got a bit of that style. What's that um, Rosamund Pike film called again? What, that Gone she... No. <laughs> 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 No, the the more recent one. It, oh, she almost um, got nominated for with it. Peter Dinklage. Yes, correct. Uh, it's I like. It's something like that. I like people. No. Um, Sorry, I generally liked it as well. That film, I liked it quite a lot. Peter Dinklage movie is called I Care a Lot. I Care a Lot. That's it. About the scammers. Yes. It kind of has that same vibe to it. I just get that feeling. Yeah, I Fun care film. a lot. Thank you for that. I Yeah, I actually really enjoyed that film. I think it's excellent. But uh, that is everything, Zeke, coming to streaming and cinemas this week. Excellent. Thank you, Jake. Well, we're moving into the last installment on our adventure. Mm. We've journeyed pretty far, Jake, but oh. we haven't quite got to the summit of Mount Doom. Almost there. Next week, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Every day, Frodo moves closer to Mordor. How do we know Frodo is alive? What does your heart tell you? Come, master! Come, Dismeal! It is time. Give him the sword of the king. Come, who you were born to be. This is your test. Every path you have trod through wilderness, through war, has led to this road. We shall see the Shire again. All you have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to you. The former Fellowship members prepare for the final battle. While Frodo and Sam approach Mount Doom to destroy the One Ring, they follow Gollum, unaware of the path he's leading them to. Leading them to, to she, Zeke. Oh, she lob. She, she'll get him. She'll get him. Oh. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Actually, I do, I do remember who he's referring to. Oh. Well, we'll have to stay tuned till next week. There you go. To find out who... I was trying to think of a pun. Like an eight-leg pun, something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you'll have to stay tuned for next week. That is true. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King.